With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The next chapter is in the next section, um, the third section, I think, and it's the modern Peloponnesian War, in which Stoddard compares the Great War, which is World War One, World War Two hasn't happened yet, we call it the Great War, to uh, the, the Peloponnesian War, where the Greeks committed, he calls it race suicide, because <clears throat> it just messed everything up, and he goes on into, the, I think it's called dysgenic effects of warfare, where when you have these big wars, you doubly damage your race because the bravest people in your race get killed off. And what's left is the the cowards, the people who didn't fight, the people who can't run as fast or not as strong. And he says that has, that has an effect on the next generation because the people who survive to breed with the females of the race are not the bravest. Wow. And that that has an effect. There's one sentence I got a quote in here before we before we take the questions. I'm trying to find it right now, but it's one where he quotes um, Madison Grant. Yeah. Uh, after talking, and he goes into quite some detail talking about all the white people that are not going to be born. The effect of depressed white people who have seen some of the violence and damage of not wanting to have children or having children and being alcoholic and just, just how it messes everything up. Um, but this one little quote here is um, by Madison Grant, who wrote a similar book, I don't know if it was before or after Stoddard, called The Passing of a Great Race. And it's the same theme. I haven't read that book, but it's along the same lines that as time goes by, white people are being degraded by race mixing and just becoming less, less valuable stock or something like that. But his quote is, 
the Great War has unquestionably left Europe. This is uh, page 183 in the chapter of the Peloponnesian War. Okay. The Great War has thus unquestionably left Europe much poorer in Nordic blood, while conversely it has relatively favored the Mediterranean. Madison Grant well says, and this is a quote, as in all wars since Roman times, from the breeding point of view, the little dark man is the final winner. <laughs> That's what Madison Grant said. Little dark man is the final winner. <sighs> oh, see, it, I, it, I, it, I'm left thinking again of race when he talks about race being the the uh, what, what does he say? Uh, Madison Grant is the one who wrote the preface to the book. And he said he's the one yeah. who made that statement. The basic factor in human affairs is not politics, but race. And that's why I think by race he means uh, sexual uh, transmission of DNA. Yep. Yep. Wow. Wow. Okay. Which is in this in inextricably linked with resources, which is inextricably linked uh, linked with power. So that if China today where to, you're the one who explained this to me uh, during one of our conversations, uh, that if China today were to say, you know what, um, you're not paying us back here. You know, we've been sending all this stuff to you on credit, and um, you're not paying, uh, you being Europe and the United States, Australia, and so on. So, you know, we've been doing all this factory stuff. We've been putting our people to work with all our sweatshops, you know, because we have this great talent towards labor under the, in the harshest conditions. And we've been making all this stuff for you from transistor radios to parts of computers, toys, clothes. You know what? We know how to make this stuff now, but you're not paying us in any kind of currency. So we're going to turn our ships around and we're just going to distribute our goods to our people now. We can do it. We know how to do it. We'll just do it ourselves. But we don't need thank you very much. We've learned how to do it for ourselves. We'll provide for ourselves. And by the way, we've got machines. Now we can feed ourselves too. That it still comes down to power because, yeah, you've got this industrial capacity, but have you transformed that into military power? Can you stop white people from coming in and saying, you're going to do what? No, you're not. Uh, we got some missiles here that can really do a lot of damage to you, and you can't strike back at us, not in a way that's going to get to us. It might hurt some other yellow people. So I tell you what, you better keep doing what you're doing if you don't want to end up like shadows, uh, as shadows in uh, against uh, buildings like the Japanese did after we dropped those two atomic uh, weapons on you. So that's the reason the Japanese work so hard for us. If you don't, if you didn't remember, that's the reason that they work so hard. They don't ever want that to happen again to them, and we really wouldn't want to have to do that to you. So keep working, yellow man. Context of white supremacy gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date friday december 2nd 2016 so i have been told the audio segment at the beginning of the program uh, that was mr josh wicket and Cree counter-racist evolving engineer legendary broadcast uh, that she hosted uh, back in 2010 
uh, on her program. I actually remember listening to that broadcast uh, live uh, where Mr. Wicket, uh, Miss Cree, where they discussed the very book that we are reading right now. Uh, it's about a little less than three hour uh, discussion. Uh, you can download it. In fact, she uploaded it uh, so that people could access it again after the passing of Dr. Welsing, since Dr. Welsing strongly encouraged that serious attempted counter-racists uh, study uh, the work of Lothrop Stoddard. Uh, this is our sixth study session. Uh, we are in the midpoint of chapter 11, closing on the conclusion of the book. Midpoint of chapter 11 is where we're picking up at. Uh, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. This is Lothrop Stoddard, the rising tide of color against white world supremacy. Audio segment number one. The way in which admixture of alien blood can modify or even destroy the very soul of a people have been fully analyzed both by biologists and by social psychologists like Dr. Gustave Le Bon. The way in which wholesale immigration, even though mainly white, has already profoundly modified American national character is succinctly stated by Mr. Elliot Norton. If, he writes, quote, one considers the American people from, say, 1775 to 1860, it is clear that a well-defined national character was in process of formation. What variations there were were all of the same type, and these variations would have slowly grown less and less marked. It needs little study to see of what great value to any body of men, women, and children a national or racial type is. It furnishes a standard of conduct by which anyone can set his course. The world is a difficult place in which to live, and to establish moral standards has been one of the chief occupations of mankind. Without such standards, man feels as a mariner without a compass. Religions, rules, laws, and customs are only the national character in the form of standards of conduct. Now, national character can be formed only in a population which is stable. The repeated introduction into a body of men of other men of different type or types cannot but tend to prevent its formation. Thus, the 19 million of immigrants that have landed have tended to break up the type which was forming, and to make the formation of any other type difficult. Every million more will only intensify this result, and the absence of a national character is a loss to every man, woman, and child. It will show itself in our religions, rules of conduct, in our laws, in our customs." End quote. The vital necessity of restriction and selection in immigration to conserve and build race values is thus set forth by Mr. Hall. Quote, there is one aspect of immigration restriction in the various countries which does not often receive much attention, namely the possibility of its use as a method of world eugenics. Most persons think of migration in terms of space, as the moving of a certain number of people from one part of the Earth's surface to another whereas the much more important aspect of it is that of a functioning in time. This comes from two facts. The first is that the vacuum left in any country by immigration is rapidly filled up through a rise in the birth rate. The second fact is that immigration to any country of a given stratum of population tends to sterilize all strata of higher social and economic levels already in that country. So true is this that nearly all students of the matter are agreed that the United States would have a larger population today if there had been no immigration since 1820, and, it is needless to add, a much more homogeneous population. 
As long as the people of any community are relatively homogeneous, what differences of wealth and social position there may be do not affect the birth rate, or do so only after a considerable time. But put into that community a number of immigrants, inferior mentally, socially, and economically, and the natives are unwilling to have their children associate with them in work or social life. They then limit the number of their children in order to give them the capital or education to enter occupations in which they will not be brought into contact with the new arrivals. This result is quite apparent in New England, where successive waves of immigration from lower and lower levels have been coming in for 80 years. In the West, the same New England stock has a much higher birth rate, showing that its fertility is in no way diminished. In the South, where until very recently there was no immigration at all, and the only socially inferior race was clearly separated by the accident of color, the birth rate has remained very high, and the very large families of the colonial period are even now not uncommon. This is not to say that other causes do not contribute to lower the birth rate of a country, for that is an almost worldwide phenomenon, but the desire to be separated from inferiors is as strong a motive to birth control as the desire for luxury, or to ape one's economic superiors. Races follow Gresham's law as to money. The poor of two kinds in the same place tends to supplant the better. Mark you, supplant, not drive out. One of the most common fallacies is the idea that the natives whose places are taken by the lower immigrants are driven up to more responsible positions. A few may be pushed up. More are driven to a new locality, as happened in the mining regions. But most are prevented from coming into existence at all. What is the result, then, of the migration of one million persons of lower level into a country where the average is of a higher level? Considering the world as a whole, there are, after a few years, two million persons of the lower type in the world, and probably from 500,000 to one million less of the higher type. The proportion of lower to higher in the country from which the migration goes may remain the same, but in the country receiving it, it has risen. Is the world, as a whole, the gainer? Of course, the euthanist says at once that these immigrants are improved. We may grant that, although the improvement is probably much exaggerated. You cannot make bad stock into good by changing its meridian, any more than you can turn a cart horse into a hunter by putting it into a fine stable, or make a mongrel into a fine dog by teaching it tricks. But such improvement as there is involves time, expense, and trouble. And when it is done, has anything been gained? Will anyone say that the races that have supplanted the old Nordic stock in New England are any better, or as good, as the descendants of that stock would have been if their birth rate had not been lowered? Further, in addition to the purely biological aspects of the matter, there are certain psychological ones. Although a cosmopolitan atmosphere furnishes a certain freedom in which strong congenital talents can develop, it is a question whether as many are not injured as helped by this. Indeed, there is considerable evidence to show that for the production of great men, a certain homogeneity of environment is necessary. The reason of this is very simple. In a homogeneous community, options on a large number of matters are fixed. The individual does not have to attend to such things, but is free to go ahead on some special line of his own to concentrate to his limit on his work, even though that work be fighting the common opinions. But in a community of many races, there is either cross-breeding or there is not. 
If there is, the children of such crossbreedings are liable to inherit two souls, two temperaments, two sets of opinions, with the result in many cases that they are unable to think or act strongly and consistency in any direction. The classic examples are Cuba, Mexico, and Brazil. On the other hand, if there is no crossbreeding, the diversity exists in the original races, and in a community full of diverse ideals of all kinds, much of the energy of the higher type of man is dissipated in two ways. First, in the intellectual field there is much more doubt about everything, and he tends to weigh, discuss, and agitate many more subjects in order to arrive at a conclusion amid the opposing views. Second, in practical affairs, much time and strength have to be devoted to keeping things going along old lines, which could have been spent in new research and development. In how many of our large cities today are men of the highest type spending their whole time fighting, often in vain, to maintain standards of honesty, decency, and order, and in trying to compose the various ethnic elements who should be free to build new structures upon the old? The moral seems to be this. Eugenics among individuals is encouraging the propagation of the fit and limiting or preventing the multiplication of the unfit. World eugenics is doing precisely the same thing as to races considered as wholes. Immigration restriction is a species of segregation on a large scale by which inferior stocks can be prevented from both diluting and supplanting good stocks. Just as we isolate bacterial invasions and starve out the bacteria by limiting the area and amount of their food supply, so we can compel an inferior race to remain in its native habitat, where its own multiplication in a limited area will, as with all organisms, eventually limit its numbers and therefore its influence. On the other hand, the superior races, more self-limiting than the others, with the benefits of more space and nourishment, will tend to still higher levels. This result is not merely a selfish benefit to the higher races, but a good to the world as a whole. The object is to produce the greatest number of those fittest not for survival merely, but fittest for all purposes. The lower types among men progress so far as their racial inheritance allows them to, chiefly by imitation and emulation. The presence of the highest development and the highest institutions among any race is a distinct benefit to all the others. It is a gift of psychological environment to anyone capable of appreciation. End quote. The impossibility of any advanced and prosperous community maintaining its social standards and handing them down to its posterity in these days of cheap and rapid transportation, except by restrictions upon immigrations, is thus explained by Professor Ross. Quote, now that cheap travel stirs the social deeps and far beckoning opportunity fills the steerage, Immigration becomes ever more serious to the people that hopes to rid itself at least of slums, masses, and submerged. What is the good of practicing prudence in the family if hungry strangers may crowd in and occupy at the banquet table of life the places reserved for its children? Shall it, in order to relieve the teeming lands of their unemployed, abide in the pit of wolfish competition and renounce the fair prospect of growth in suavity, comfort, and refinement? If not, then the low-pressure society must not only slam its doors upon the indraft, but must double-lock them with forts and ironclads, lest they be burst open by assault from some quarter where cannon food is cheap. End quote. 
These admirable summaries of the immigration problem in its world aspect are strikingly illustrated by our own country, which may be considered as the leading, if not the horrible, example. Probably few persons fully appreciate what magnificent racial treasures America possessed at the beginning of the 19th century. The colonial stock was perhaps the finest that nature had evolved since the classic Greeks. It was the very pick of the Nordics of the British Isles and adjacent regions of the European continent, picked at a time when those countries were more Nordic than now, since the Industrial Revolution had not yet begun and the consequent resurgence of the Mediterranean and Alpine elements had not taken place. The immigrants of colonial times were largely exiles for conscience's sake, while the very process of migration was so difficult and hazardous that only persons of courage, initiative, and strong willpower would voluntarily face the long voyage overseas to a life of struggle in an untamed wilderness haunted by ferocious savages. Thus, the entire process of colonial settlement was one continuous, drastic cycle of eugenic selection. Only the racially fit ordinarily came, while the few unfit who did come were mostly weeded out by the exacting requirements of early American life. The eugenic results were magnificent. As Madison Grant well says, quote, Nature had vouchsafed to the Americans of a century ago the greatest opportunity in recorded history to produce in the isolation of a continent a powerful and racially homogeneous people and had provided for the experiment a pure race of one of the most gifted and vigorous stocks on earth, a stock free from the diseases, physical and moral, which would have again and again sapped the vigor of the older lands. Our grandfathers threw away this opportunity in the blissful ignorance of national childhood and inexperience. End quote. The number of the great names which America produced at the beginning of its national life shows the high level of ability possessed by this relatively small people, only about three million whites in 1790. With our hundred-odd millions, we have no such output of genius today. The opening decades of the 19th century seemed to portend for America the most glorious of futures. For nearly 70 years after the Revolution, immigration was small, and during that long period of ethnic isolation, the colonial stock, unperturbed by alien influences, adjusted its cultural differences, and began to display the traits of a genuine new type, harmonious in basic homogeneity and incalculably rich in racial promise. The general level of ability continued high, and the output of talent remained extraordinarily large. Perhaps the best feature of the nascent Native American race was its strong idealism. Despite the materialistic blight which was then creeping over the white world, the Native American displayed characteristics more reminiscent of his Elizabethan forebears than of the materialistic Hanoverian Englishman. It was a wonderful time, and it was only the dawn. But the full day of that wondrous dawning never came. In the late forties of the nineteenth century, the first waves of the modern immigrant tide began breaking on our shores, and the tide swelled to a veritable deluge which never slackened till temporarily restrained by the late war. This immigration, to be sure, first came mainly from northern Europe, was thus largely composed of kindred stocks, and contributed many valuable elements. Only during the last thirty years have we been deluged by the truly alien hordes of the European East and South. But, even at its best, the immigrant tide could not measure up to the colonial stock which it displaced, not reinforced, while, latterly, it became a menace to the very existence of our race 
ideals, and institutions. All our slowly acquired balance, physical, mental, and spiritual, has been upset, and we today flounder in a veritable Serbonian bog, painfully trying to regain the solid ground on which our grandsires confidently stood. The dangerous fallacy in that short-sighted idealism which seeks to make America the haven of refuge for the poor and oppressed of all lands, and its evil effects not only on America, but on the rest of the world as well, has been convincingly exposed by Professor Ross. He has scant patience with those social uplifters whose sympathy with the visible alien at the gate is so keen that they have no feeling for the invisible children of our poor who will find the chances gone, nor for those at the gate of the to-be, who might have been born but will not. Quote, I am not one of those, end quote, he writes, quote, who consider humanity and forget the nation, who pity the living but not the unborn. To me, those who are to come after us stretch forth beseeching hands as well as do the masses on the other side of the globe. Nor do I regard America as something to be spent quickly and cheerfully for the benefit of pent-up millions in the backward lands. What if we become crowded without their ceasing to be so? I regard it, America, as a nation whose future may be of unspeakable value to the rest of mankind, provided that the easier conditions of life here be made permanent by high standards of living, institutions, and ideals, which finally may be appropriated by all men. We could have helped the Chinese a little by letting their surplus millions swarm in upon us a generation ago, but we have helped them infinitely more by protecting our standards and having something worth their copying when the time came. End quote. The perturbing influence of recent immigration must vex American life for many decades. Even if laws are passed tomorrow so drastic as to shut out permanently the influx of undesirable elements, it will yet take several generations before the combined action of assimilation and elimination shall have re-established our population and evolved a new type norm approaching in fixity that which was on the point of crystallizing three-quarters of a century ago. The biologist Humphrey thus punctures the melting pot delusion. Quote, Our melting pot, end quote, he writes, quote, would not give us in a thousand years what enthusiasts expect of it, a fusing of all our various racial elements into a new type which shall be the true American. It will give us for many generations a perplexing diversity in ancestry, and since our successors much reach back into their ancestry for characteristics, this diversity will increase the uncertainty of their inheritances. They will inherit no stable blended character because there is no such thing. They will inherit from a mixture of unlike characteristics contributed by many peoples, and in their inheritance they will have certain of these characteristics in full identity, while certain others they will not have at all. End quote. Thus, even under the most favorable circumstances, we are in for generations of racial readjustment, an immense travail, essentially needless, since the final product will probably not measure up to the colonial standard. We will probably never, unless we adopt positive eugenic measures, be the race we might have been if America had been reserved for the descendants of the picked Nordics of colonial times. But that is no reason for folding our hands in despairing inaction. On the contrary, we should be up and doing, for though some of our race heritage has been lost, more yet remains. We can still be a very great people, if we will it so. 
Heaven be praised, the colonial stock was immensely prolific before the alien tide wrought its sterilizing havoc. Even today, nearly one half of our population is of the old blood. While many millions of the immigrant stock are sound in quality and assimilable in kind, only the immigrant tide must at all costs be stopped and America given a chance to stabilize her ethnic being. It is the old story of the Sibylline books. Some, to be sure, are ashes of the dead past. All the more should we conserve the precious volumes which remain. One fact should be clearly understood. If America is not true to her own race soul, she will inevitably lose it, and the brightest star that has appeared since Hellas will fall like a meteor from the human sky, its brilliant radiance fading into the night. Quote, we Americans, end quote, says Madison Grant, quote, must realize that the altruistic ideals which have controlled our social development during the past century and the maudlin sentimentalism that has made America an asylum for the oppressed are sweeping the nation toward a racial abyss. If the melting pot is allowed to boil without control and we continue to follow our national motto and deliberately blind ourselves to all distinctions of race, creed, or color, the type of Native American of colonial descent will become as extinct as the Athenian of the age of Pericles and the Viking of the days of Rollo. End quote. And let us not lay any sacrificial unction to our souls. If we cheat our country and the world of the splendid promise of American life, we shall have no one to blame but ourselves, and we shall deserve not pity but contempt. As Professor Ross well puts it, quote, a people that has no more respect for its ancestors and no more pride of race than this deserves the extinction that surely awaits it. End quote. This extended discussion of the evil effects of even white immigration has, in my opinion, been necessary in order to get a proper perspective for viewing the problem of colored immigration. For it is perfectly obvious that if the influx of inferior kindred stocks is bad, the influx of wholly alien stocks is infinitely worse. When we see the damage wrought in America, for example, by the coming of persons who, after all, belong mostly to branches of the white race and who nearly all possess the basic ideals of white civilization, we can grasp the incalculably greater damage which would be wrought by the coming of persons wholly alien in blood and possessed of idealistic and cultural backgrounds absolutely different from ours. If the white immigrant can gravely disorder the national life, it is not too much to say that the colored immigrant would doom it to certain death. This doom would be all the more certain because of the enormous potential volume of colored immigration. Beside it, the white immigrant tide of the past century would pale into insignificance. Leaving all other parts of the colored world out of the present discussion, three Asiatic countries, China, Japan, and India, together have a population of nearly 800 million. That is, practically twice the population of Europe, the source of white immigration. And the vast majority of these 800 million Asiatics are potential immigrants into white territories. Their standards of living are so inconceivably low, their congestion is so painful, and their consequent desire for relief so keen that the high standard, relatively empty white world seems to them a perfect paradise. Only the barrier of the white man's veto has prevented a perfect deluge of colored men into white lands, 
and even as it is the desperate seekers after fuller life have crept and crawled through every crevice in that barrier until even these advanced guards today constitute serious local problems along the white world's race frontiers the simple truth of the matter is this a mighty problem a planet-wide problem confronts us today and will increasingly confront us in the days to come says putnam wheel quote, a struggle has begun between the white man and all the other men of the world to decide whether non-white men that is yellow men or brown men or black men may or may not invade the white man's countries in order there to gain their livelihood the standard of living being low in the lands of colored men and high in the lands of the white man it has naturally followed that it has been in the highest degree attractive for men of color during the past few decades to proceed to regions where their labor is rewarded on a scale far above their actual requirements that is on the white man's scale this simple economic truth creates the inevitable contest which has for years filled all the countries bordering on the pacific with great dread and which in spite of the temporary truce which the so-called exclusion policy has now enforced will go much farther than it has yet gone End quote. The worldwide significance of colored immigration and the momentous conflicts which it will probably provoke are ably visualized by Professor Ross. Quote, the rush of developments, end quote, he writes, quote, makes it certain that the vision of a globe lapped in universal law is premature. If the seers of the mid-century who looked for the speedy triumph of free trade had read their Malthus aright, they might have anticipated the tariff barriers that have arisen on all hands within the last thirty years. So today, no one needs no prophet's mantle to foresee that presently the world will be cut up with immigration barriers which will never be leveled until the intelligent accommodation of numbers to resources has greatly equaled population pressures all over the globe. Dams against the colored races, with spillways of course for students, merchants, and travelers, will presently enclose the white man's world. Within this area, minor dams will protect the high wages of the less prolific peoples against the surplus labor of the more prolific. Quote, Assuredly, every small family nation will try to raise such a dam, and every big family nation will try to break it down. The outlook for peace and disarmament is, therefore, far from bright one needs but compare the population pressures in france germany russia and japan to realize that even today the real enemy of the dove of peace is not the eagle of pride or the vulture of greed but the stork the great point of doubt in birth restriction is the ability of the western nations to retain control of the vast african australasian and south american areas they have staked out as preserves to be peopled at their leisure with the diminishing overflow of their population if underbreeding should leave them without the military strength that alone can defend their far-flung frontiers in the southern hemisphere those huge underdeveloped regions will assuredly be filled with the children of the brown and the yellow races End quote. thus white men of whatever country and however far removed from personal contact with colored competitors must realize that the question of colored immigration vitally concerns every white man woman and child because nowhere absolutely nowhere can white labor compete on equal terms with colored immigrant labor the grim truth is that there are enough hard-working colored men to swamp the whole white world no palliatives will serve to mitigate the ultimate issue 
For if the white race should today surrender enough of its frontiers to ease the existing colored population pressure, so quickly would these surrendered regions be swamped, and so rapidly would the fast-breeding colored races fill the homeland gaps, that in a very short time the diminished white world would be faced with an even louder colored clamor for admittance, backed by an increased power to enforce the colored will. The profoundly destructive effects of colored competition upon white standards of labor and living has been long admitted by all candid students of the problem. So warm a champion of Asiatics as Mr. Hindeman acknowledges that, quote, The white workers cannot hold their own permanently against Chinese competition in the labor market. The lower standard of life, the greater persistence, the superior education of the Chinese will beat them, and will continue to beat them, end quote. Wherever the white man has been exposed to colored competition, particularly Asian competition, the story is the same. Says the Australian professor Pearson, quote, No one in California or Australia where the effects of Chinese competition have been studied has, I believe, the smallest doubt that Chinese laborers, if allowed to come in freely, could starve all the white men in either country out of it, or force them to submit to harder work and a much lower standard of wages. And a South African writing of the effects of Hindu immigration into Natal remarks in similar vein, quote, The condition of South Africa, especially of Natal, is a warning to other lands to bar Asiatic immigrants. Both economically and socially, the presence of a large Oriental population is bad. The Asiatics either force out the white workers or compel the latter to live down to the Asiatic level. There must be a marked deterioration amongst the white working classes, which renders useless a great deal of the effort made in educational work. The white population is educated and trained according to the best ideas of the highest form of Western civilization, and has to compete for a livelihood against Asiatics. In South Africa, this competition is driving out the white working class, because the average European cannot live down to the Asiatic level. And if it is essential that the European must do so, for the sake of his own happiness, do not educate him up to better things. If cheapness is the only consideration, if low wages are to come before everything else, then it is not only waste of money, but absolute cruelty to inspire in the white working classes tastes and aspirations which it is impossible for them to realize. To meet Asiatic competition squarely, it would be necessary to train the white children to be Asiatics. Even the pro-Orientals would hardly advocate this. End quote. The lines just quoted squarely counter the survival of the fittest plea so often made by Asiatic propagandists for colored immigration. The argument runs that since the Oriental laborer is able to underbid the white laborer, the Oriental is the fittest and should therefore be allowed to supplant the white man in the interests of human progress. This is, of course, merely clever use of the well-known fallacy which confuses the terms fittest and best. The idea that, because a certain human type fits in certain ways, a particular environment, often an unhealthy, man-made social environment, it should be allowed to drive out another type endowed with much richer potentialities for the highest form of human evolution, is a sophistry as absurd as it is dangerous. Professor Ross puts the matter very aptly when he remarks concerning Chinese immigration, quote, 
the competition of white laborer and yellow is not so simple a test of human worth as some may imagine. Under good conditions, the white man can best the yellow man in turning off work. But under bad conditions, the yellow man can best the white man because he can better endure spoiled food, poor clothing, foul air, noise, heat, dirt, discomfort, and microbes. Riley can outdo Asan, but Asan can underlive Riley. Asan cannot take away Riley's job as being a better workman, but because he can live and do some work at a wage on which Riley cannot keep himself fit to work at all, three or four Asans can take Riley's job from him, and they will do it too, unless they are barred out of the market where Riley is selling his labor. Riley's endeavor to exclude Asan from his labor market is not the case of a man dreading to pit himself on equal terms against a better man. Indeed, it is not quite so simple and selfish and narrow-minded as all that. It is a case of a man fitted to get the most out of good conditions, refusing to yield his place to a weaker man able to withstand bad conditions. End quote. All this is no disparagement of the Asiatic. He is perfectly justified in trying to win broader opportunities in white lands. But we whites are equally justified in keeping these opportunities for ourselves and our children. The hard facts are that there is not enough for both. That when the enormous outward thrust of colored population pressure bursts into a white land, it cannot let live, but automatically crushes the white man out. First the white laborer, then the white merchant. Lastly, the white aristocrat, until every vestige of white has gone from that land forever. This inexorable process is thus described by an Australian. Quote, the colored races become agencies of economic disturbance and social degradation. They sap and destroy the upward tendencies of the poorer whites. The latter, instead of always having something better to look at and strive for, have a lower standard of living, health, and cleanliness set before them, and the results are disastrous. They sink to the lower level of the Asiatics, and the degrading tendency proceeds upward by saturation, affecting several grades of society. There is an insidious yet irresistible process of social degradation. The colored race does not intentionally or even consciously lower the European. It simply happens so by virtue of a natural law which neither race can control. As debased coinage will drive out good currency, so a lower standard of living will inexorably spread until its effects are universally felt. End quote. It all comes down to a question of self-preservation. And despite what sentimentalists may say, self-preservation is the first law of nature. To love one's own cultural, idealistic, and racial heritage. To swear to pass that heritage unimpaired to one's children. To fight, and if need be, to die in its defense. All this is eternally right and proper, and no amount of causatry or sentimentality can alter that unalterable truth. An Englishman put the thing in a nutshell when he wrote, quote, Asiatic immigration is not a question of sentiment, but of sheer existence. The whole problem is summed up in Lafacadio Hearn's pregnant phrase, The East can underlive the West. End quote. Rigorous exclusion of colored immigrants is thus vitally necessary for the white peoples. Unfortunately, this exclusion policy will not be easily maintained. 
colored population pressure is insistent and increasing, while the matter is still further complicated by the fact that, while no white community can gain by colored immigration, white individuals, employers of labor, may be great gainers, and hence often tend to put private interest above racial duty. Bearing a handful of sincere but misguided cosmopolitan enthusiasts, it is unscrupulous business interests which are behind every white proposal to relax the exclusion laws protecting white areas. In fairness to these business interests, however, let us realize their great temptation. To the average employer, especially in the newer areas of white settlement, where white labor is scarce and dictatorial, what could be more enticing than the vision of a boundless supply of cheap and eager colored labor? Consider this California appraisement of the Chinese coolie. Quote, the Chinese coolie is the ideal industrial machine, the perfect human ox. He will transform less food into more work with less administrative friction than any other creature. Even now, when the scarcity of Chinese labor and the consequent rise in wages have eliminated the question of cheapness, the Chinese have still the advantage over all other servile labor in convenience and efficiency. They are patient, docile, industrious, and above all, honest in the business sense that they keep their contracts. Also, they cost nothing but money. Any other sort of labor costs human effort and worry in addition to the money. But Chinese labor can be bought like any other commodity at so much a dozen or a hundred. The Chinese contractor delivers the agreed number of men at the agreed time and place for the agreed price. And if anyone should drop out, he finds another in his place. The men board and lodge themselves. And when the work is done, they disappear from the employer's kin until needed again. The entire transaction consists in paying the Chinese contractor an agreed number of dollars for an agreed result. This elimination of the human element reduces the labor problem to something the employer can understand. The Chinese labor machine, from his standpoint, is perfect. End quote. What is true of the Chinese is true to a somewhat lesser extent of all coolie labor. Hence, once introduced into a white country, it becomes immensely popular among employers. How it was working out in South Africa before the Exclusion Acts there is clearly explained in the following lines. Quote, the experience of South Africa is that when once Asiatic labor is admitted, the tendency is for it to grow. One manufacturer secures it and is able to cut prices to such an extent that the other manufacturers are forced either to employ Asiatics also or to reduce white wages to the Asiatic level. Oriental labor is something which does not stand still. The taste for it grows. A party springs up financially interested in increasing it. In Natal today, the suggestion that Indian labor should no longer be imported is met by an outcry from the planters, the farmers, and landowners, and a certain number of manufacturers, that industries and agriculture will be ruined. So the coolie ships continue to arrive at Durban and Natal becomes more and more a land of black and brown people, and less a land of white people. Instead of becoming a Canada or New Zealand, it is becoming a Trinidad or Cuba. Instead of white settlers, there are brown settlers. The working class white population has to go, as it is going in Natal. 
The country becomes a country of white landlords and supervisors controlling a horde of Asiatics. It does not produce a nation or a free people. It becomes what in the old days of English colonization was called a plantation. End quote. All this gives a clearer idea of the difficulties involved in a successful guarding of the gates, but it also confirms the conviction that the gates must be strictly guarded. If anything further were needed to reinforce that conviction, it should be the present state of those white outposts where the gates have been left ajar. Hawaii is a good example. The mid-Pacific archipelago was brought under white control by masterful American Nordics who established Anglo-Saxon institutions and taught the natives the rudiments of Anglo-Saxon civilization. The native Hawaiians, like the other Polynesian races, could not stand the pressure of white civilization and withered away. But the white oligarchy which controlled the islands determined to turn their marvelous fertility to immediate profit. Labor was imported from the ends of the earth, the sole test being working ability without regard to race or color. There followed a great influx of Asiatic labor, at first Chinese, until annexation to the United States brought Hawaii under the Chinese exclusion laws. Later on, Filipinos, Koreans, and above all, Japanese. The results are highly instructive. These Asiatics arrived as agricultural laborers to work on the plantations, but they did not stay there. Saving their wages, they pushed vigorously into all the middle walks of life. The Hawaiian fishermen and the American artisan or shopkeeper were alike ousted by ruthless undercutting. Today, the American mechanic, the American storekeeper, the American farmer, even the American contractor is a rare bird indeed, while Japanese corporations are buying up the finest plantations and growing the finest pineapples and sugar. Fully half the population of the islands is Japanese, while the Americans are being literally insisted as a small and dwindling aristocracy. In 1917, the births of the two races were American, 295, Japanese, 5,000. Comment is superfluous. Clear around the globe, the island of Mauritius, the halfway house between Asia and Africa, tells the same tale. Originally settled by Europeans, mostly French, Mauritius imported Negroes from Africa to work its rich soil. This at once made impossible the existence of a white laboring class. Though the upper, middle, and artisan classes remained unaffected by the economically backward blacks. A hundred years ago, one-third of the population were whites. But after the abolition of slavery, the Negroes quit work, and Asiatics were imported to take their place. The upshot was that the whites were presently swamped beneath the Asiatic tide, here mostly Hindus. Today, the Hindus alone form more than two-thirds of the whole population, the whites numbering less than one-tenth. Indeed, the very outward aspect of the island is changing. The old French landmarks are going, and the fabled land of Paul and Virginia is becoming a bit of Hindustan with a Chinese fringe. Even Port Louis, the capital town, has mostly passed from white to Indian or Chinese hands. Now, what do these two world-sundered cases mean? They mean, as an English writer justly remarks, quote, that under the British flag, Mauritius has become an outpost of Asia, just as Hawaii is another such and under the stars and stripes, 
end quote. And of course, there is Natal, already mentioned, which, at the moment when the recent South African Exclusion Act stayed the Hindu tide, had not only been partially transformed into an Asiatic land, but was fast becoming a center of Asiatic radiation all over South Africa. With such grim warnings before their eyes, it is not strange that the lusty, young Anglo-Saxon communities bordering the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, British Columbia, and our own coast have one and all set their faces like flint against the Oriental, and have emblazoned across their portals the legend, quote, all white, end quote. Nothing is more striking than the instinctive and instantaneous solidarity which binds together Australians and Afrikanders, Californians and Canadians, into a sacred union at the mere whisper of Asiatic immigration. Context of white supremacy. Sacred. I was <laughs> momentarily stymied uh, by the profoundity of the uh, last paragraph. Uh, we are stopping a little bit early, earlier than we generally uh, do for our book club. Uh, just going to try and make the audio segments balanced. So just a little bit earlier than we would normally stop. Context of white supremacy, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Uh, if you would like to chime in, share your thoughts, observations, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you do not want to use your phone, if you want to use your uh the VOPE free VOPE line to dial in. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put in that address, look on the left of the page. You'll see where it says uh, free vote line. Click that link. When you do so, it will open a small window on your screen. The top line, it is a drop down menu. Select the number I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code, again, is 564-943-POUND. Or, excuse me, do not put pound. Do not put pound. Just 564-943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can use your real name. You can put in a nickname. Uh, you can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button 
at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast, and it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, once you do that, uh, you'll hear a prompt to press the number one. We will get you. I'll see your hand on the switchboard. We'll get you on the line, and you'll be able to speak, share your thoughts with us. If you want to include commentary about uh, the debate between Stoddard and W.E.B. Dubois from 1929, certainly we can add that as we go. Uh, if you need a copy, let me know. I have posted it, emailed it, all that good stuff. If you still need it, uh, let me know. Uh, thanks again to uh, Cree. Great segment, great exchange. Uh, Cree, counter-racist evolving engineer, and Mr. Josh Wickett back in 2010. Uh, folks who dialed in uh, who have a hand up thus far, uh, if you had commentary that you wanted to share, feel free. And also thanks to Mel, Universal Alien. Phenomenal job in getting these segments together. Uh, professional. Great work. Uh, thank you all so much for uh, getting the audio together for our book study. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, feel free. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening, Gus, and uh, to all the callers uh, and listeners. Uh, uh, kind of came in a little late, but here's just a few notes that I took uh, when I was uh, following along. Um, when he, I will say one thing about you know, uh, Stoddard was has been disingenuous about the history of you know every other race outside of the white race, but uh, I do appreciate his truthfulness about how he talks about uh, the theme of America and how they're uh, pro-immigration and give me your tired and give me your, uh, you know, give me your whatever. And he basically shoots that down. Uh, not in the sense of, you know, uh, what, you know, I guess in the sense of, you know, keeping the country more white, but uh, I, do, I do appreciate him telling the truth about how, you know, how white this country is and, how the country should portray itself, you know, as a white nation. So uh, he does uh, give that little nugget about, uh, about, you know, the falsity of America being pro-immigration. Then there was this one thing where he was talking about the Asians and particularly the Chinese, where he was talking about the idea of a certain human type fits in a certain way, a particular environment, often unhealthy, uh, and a man-made social environment, which I guess he goes with the theme of, you know, Chinese can uh, or Asians can work in certain conditions, you know, just like, you know, Negro people during slavery. And that's what it brings me to. The, the, the Asians, or in particular the Chinese, are more fit for slavery than the Europeans and white people because White people are thinkers, they're the, you know, they're educated, they don't need to be doing all that manual labor stuff, and the Chinese can work through the, the, the harsh conditions, so they're, uh, you know, so they're more fit to be the workers, or uh, as, as I kind of like see it, you know, as I, as I kind of see what Lopper started looking at, they're kind of be more fit to be slaves, uh, if you ask me. And then uh, <laughs> I got a kick out of this one where it says, after the abolition of slavery, Negroes quit work. I said, "Wow, <laughs> we just stopped working after slavery." So I, I you know, it just—I I had to chuckle when I when I read that. So uh, you know, we just became lazy, and you know, right after slavery, you know. So um, that was it for me for now, and I'll mute my line. 
Shiftless Negras, yes, yes. Uh, see, Roz, did you have a uh, commentary you wanted to share? Uh, yes, uh, greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, greetings, Gus. Um, yeah, I've missed a couple of episodes. Just had some things taking place, and I had to take a mental health day from the job. So um, I'll, hopefully I'll talk about that next week. Um, yeah, it was a little crazy, uh, so I took off today. But I'm really glad I was able to um, get in on the Book Study Club this evening. Um, this book now is becoming, to me, the Bible of white supremacy. Um, this guy's propaganda game is just completely out of control. Um, I'll start on page uh, 148. Uh, he writes, uh, this, is, this is not to say that other causes do not contribute to the lower birth rate of a country, for that is an almost worldwide phenomenon. But the desire to be separated from inferiors is as strong a motive to birth control as the desire for luxury or to ape one's economic superiors. Races follow Gresham's law as to money. The poor of two kinds in the same place tend to supplant the better. Mark you supplant, not drive out. One of the most common fallacies is the idea that the natives whose places are taken by the lower immigrants are driven up to more responsible positions. A few may be pushed up, more are driven to new to a new locality, as happened to the mining regions, but most are prevented from coming into existence at all. What the result what is the result then of the migration of one million persons of a lower level into a country where the average is of a higher level? Considering the world as a whole, there are few there, there are, excuse me, after a few years, two million persons of the lower type in the world and probably from five hundred thousand to one million one million excuse me, less of the higher type. The proportion of lower to higher in the country from which the migration goes may remain the same, excuse me, but in the country receiving it it has risen, is the world as a whole the gainer. And I find that to be such a huge bit of propaganda, um, just their whole, the whole concept of uh, who is the higher type and the lower type, which, of course, we know they're, they're speaking of basically white people being the higher type and the lower types being the non-white. But just this whole concept and this false reality that, uh, that is being dictated in that portion of the text um, is basically the same same thing they did with the whole concept of race. They just created this concept, put uh, some pseudoscience behind it, and the power of white supremacy went around the world terrorizing and genociding people, and now that's the reality we all live. So um, I find this piece of propaganda to be exceptional and telling when it comes to revealing the system of white supremacy and how it functions. Um, on page 150, he writes, the result is not merely, uh, it's a quote actually, the result is not merely a selfish benefit to the higher races, but a good to the world as a whole. The object is to produce the greatest number of those fittest, not for survival merely, but fittest for all purposes. The lower types among men progress so far as their racial inheritance allows them to, allows them to excuse me, chiefly by imitation and emulation. The presence of the highest development and the highest institutions among any race is a distinct benefit to all the others. It is a gift of psychological environment to anyone capable of appreciation. And I find that quote very interesting because what they're describing is what uh, black people did when they saved Europe after the plague. Um, essentially, you had black people who came with the sciences that they procured from Kemet, uh, converted and translated into Arabic, and went to Europe and basically saved the, the, the dregs and vestiges of what was left after the plague took out three quarters of their people. And as a result, with their arrival, 
um, basically became the first schools, the first hospitals, the first bathhouses, everything about basic rudimentary, rudimentary civilized life um, as we know it, start, as far as Europe is concerned, came with the Moors and their almost 800-year rule of that area. So I just find it very interesting that of how they're writing this. It's in reverse, but ultimately they're telling the story of what black people did when we came there, because when black people went to Europe, there was no, uh, there was no warfare. Everyone was able to practice their own religion, whether it was Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and no one was being oppressed or abused. And then once they kicked them out, uh, January 1st of 1492, everything has basically spun off into the Europe that we know of today with all of the, you know, terrorism and whatever other stuff these white people have been conjuring up. Um, I'm going to try and keep this short. I had a couple other things, but I'm just going to touch on, uh, one more. Um, oh, on page uh, 156, he writes, no palliatives will serve to mitigate the ultimate issue for if the white race should today surrender enough of its frontiers to ease the existed, exist, excuse me, existing color population pressure, so quickly would these surrendered regions be swamped and so rapidly would the fast-breeding colored races fill the homeland gaps that in a very short time, the colored races I mean, the very, in a very short time, the diminished white world would be faced with an even louder colored clamor for admittance, backed by an increased power to enforce colored will. And I find that to be a very important paragraph um, simply because he's speaking of the ability of white people as far as when they do allow uh, people, non-white people into their country, that he's basically saying the, that we would outbreed them and there's a pressure of population that we would create for them in a very short time since we are more prolific as far as breeding in comparison to white people and their diminishing numbers. But also, um, once I think once he's alluding to once white non-white people come to an understanding of the system and understand that in numbers, they really, really dwarf white people, um, that we'll be able to really push for what we want and get it simply on the base of sheer numbers and the force of those numbers, which is something that I think we haven't come to a realization of yet as a collective of non-white people around the planet that make up nine-tenths of the, um, of the population. So thank you, and um, I'll mute my line, and hopefully I'll get a chance to talk later on in the show. For sure. I hope you are uh, managing your mental health as best you can. Uh, definitely understand uh, what it's like to be terrorized, and just glad you were able to take some time to replenish. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, the caller at 1664, did you have commentary? Sure. Um, good evening, Des, and good evening to all the other listeners, and, and thank you, uh, thank you to the reader for reading. It is so appreciated. I do love to be read to. And I also enjoyed hearing uh, Cree. I, I, my two favorite people to listen to on podcasts are you and Cree. You, you balance each other perfectly, and I would suggest that everyone who listens to you listen to Cree for that balance. So um, what I was struck by was just the use of uh, – I, I, I don't know. Somebody used the term they called white people, not uh, white supremacy, but uh, the supreme delusion. I mean, this supreme delusion of, of supremacy. And, and, and that's all you see in this. I mean, then this guy is writing to delude himself, to convince himself, to convince the other white people. He is writing 
to reinforce the supreme delusion. So, but uh, and that's the way I look at everything he's saying. But I did, I did, I was interested in that word. He used the word "our grandsires," and we had said recently we were going to use the word "grandcestors." So, um, grandsire. I mean, to me, it just shows when we say grandcestor, that's like you know the people who came before us, the people who gave us you know our DNA, our culture, our language, our everything, the rich tapestry of of being people. But this guy just said, you know, our grandsires, and and that only implies who sired you. You know, even if that was just a you know, a turkey baster. So it's just, a, you know, everything is in, in the genes, in the genetics, and what's making us white. Doesn't matter if it's a turkey baster. Doesn't matter if it's coming out of a Petri dish. You said our grandsire and left off everything that was, I mean, grandsire, like everything that was cultural for them. It just doesn't mean anything to him. Secondly, when they were talking about, uh, well, you know, white people limit. Uh, how many children they have so that they have a, a better chance of passing on their wealth and a greater quality of life to their children. I mean, we've got these mega billionaires. They may even be trillionaires by yesterday. But, I mean, they don't have that many children. But Gates has got, what, three kids that we know of? Oh, three kids. Yeah, and then um, I, I, none of them have that many children. I really don't think it's all a matter of money and passing on quality of life. I think that's part of of that uh, supreme delusion, you know that's why that's why we're all doing it. We're not sick. We're not genetically inferior. We're just trying to pass on the best we can to our children. No, I don't think they can. They really can't. They physically can't, and uh, they're bringing in the delusion to cover that. Second, I mean, this sentence didn't even make sense. He said, um, "A weak man." He said, "A weak man." <laughs> I mean, he's talking about the Asians. A weak man. Able to withstand bad conditions. Now, how is a weak man supposed to be able to withstand bad conditions? This doesn't even make any sense. You're going to call somebody weak, and then you're going to say they're able to withstand bad conditions. It's just, I mean, he's doing that the whole book. He's just making up this stuff for himself and, and all the other white people. And I think the other uh, t- uh, the other uh, commenter already said something about the when he was taught, I think he mentioned that sentence, the East can underlive the West, you know, and I guess uh, they already said that about black people. Oh, you know, black people don't really need medical care. They don't really need meat. We'll just give them some fat back. We'll give them some, some cornmeal, some corn mush. You know, they can withstand the cold better than we can. They can withstand the heat better than we can. We can. They can withstand not having any clothing or shoes better than we can. Yeah, they... they they just say that about everyone because these people are lazy and cruel. So I think that was, oh, and the other thing about our, I think that our birth rate, you know, we have fewer children now too, just because of the, the, the association, you know, our, our, our proximateness to white people. It's just we wanted to, to, to talk like them, to be like them, to dress like them, to act like them, to have fewer children like them. We want our lawns to be like theirs. So, you know, just being close to them is just enough to infect us with their own sicknesses. So, anyway, I think that, um, I think those are all the things I had a chance to, uh, to jot down. Thank you.
Thank you, Karma. Uh, that, uh, when he said grandsire, that stood out to me as well. Uh, I looked it up. So I'm going to read. There are three different definitions. So the first one, noun. Uh, the male parent of an animal, especially a stallion or bull, kept for breeding. Uh, next, uh, archaic, a respectful form of address for someone of high social status, especially a king. Next, a father or other male forebear. Uh, and then you can also use it as a verb uh, to be the male parent uh, of an animal, generally be the way it would be used. So those are some of the definitions uh, associated with the word uh, sire. Um, that add anything? Do you want to add anything to, to how he used that term in the body of the text, or are you satisfied, Karma? No, no, I'm satisfied. I'll probably look it up some more later. Okay. Right on. Uh, if other folks have commentary uh, they want to share, feel free. We have ample time. We do have the second audio uh, segment coming up. Uh, but some of the notes I included as well. I not only was I reminded repeatedly of Donald Trump and a lot of his talk about immigrants uh, and what is now being labeled uh, white nationalist talk, I would just say is uh, another form of white supremacy rhetoric, political rhetoric, uh, but to talk about the danger of immigrants and uh, that being a threat uh, to the white population, to the white race, that was one. And then I kept thinking of the purge films it in fact i think next week that will be what i use as the introduction i think there are numerous speeches throughout those purge films where you hear the exact same type of rhetoric uh which was the same type of rhetoric in donald trump's campaign the the make america great again uh type of spirit and we have fallen in our vigilance and protecting ourselves from this threat and you know we might have to go out and do some bad things it might even mean going out and killing some people killing some dark people but you know sacrifices have to be made and you know this will be worth it and we have a legacy and our our grandsires they would demand this of like that same type of of just rhetoric i felt it was it was reeking throughout this week's uh portion of the reading uh some of the things that man uh let me see if i can if i can start from the beginning let's see where he says when he's talking about the immigrants as a tide where he says only the immigrant the immigrant tide must be stopped at all cost and america given a chance to stabilize her ethnic being it is the old story of the city line books some to be sure are ashes of the dead past all the more should we conserve the precious volumes which remain. Uh, I thought that just this whole portion, uh, and, and even before that, the portion I didn't read, he says, uh, where we can still be a very great people, heaven be praised, the colonial stock was immensely prolific before the alien tide wrought its sterilizing havoc. <laughs> I thought that whole, this is all the same paragraph I read together. I thought just all of that hugely important. Like I said, I think that's to me very similar to the type of rhetoric that you hear from Donald Trump's campaign. And 
this, in my view, where we talk about this being a more explicit articulation and even to Cree's point about the sexual nature that's there, there is a threat. These non-white people being allowed into our borders, into our geographic location, that just them being here, they're going to breed, they're going to reproduce a lot, and it's going to be a threat to us. Oh my gosh, huge problem. We got to be vigilant about that. Uh, I thought that very similar to the rhetoric we hear today. And I even, the deception factor to all of this, I think Mr. Fuller and many many others have said, if whites did not want these non-white people to be here, they could have stopped that a long time ago. Whites don't have to do a whole lot of racist man, racist woman. They don't have to do a whole lot of hand-wringing, protesting, marching, singing songs. They don't have to do all that. They don't have to have any die-ins. If they didn't want them to be here, they wouldn't be here. If they didn't want to have sexual intercourse with non-white people, they could stop that real quick. And that's one link to the debate with uh, W.E.B. Dubois that he makes over and over with Stoddard that all of these, you know, battle cries, oh, they're raping our women and all, we got to protect that. That is nonsense that these whites, we cannot keep them off. And particularly highlighting, I think 1842 said, particularly raping black females, raping all black people, males, females, and children. But the point that Dubois made specifically was about black females that, you know, you keep making this comment about protecting white womanhood and you just keep raping black females. Uh, He made that point over and over in the 1929 debate. Uh, Some of the other things that stood out, uh, I thought it was really important when he was talking about the standard of living that that was, that was one of the enticements, right, for non-white people to come to areas where it's a predominantly white population, uh, homo, uh, homogeneous white population, uh, where he says the standard of living being low in the lands of colored men and high in the lands of the white man, it is naturally followed that it has been the highest degree of attractive uh, of attractiveness for men of color during the past few decades to proceed to regions where their labor is rewarded on a scale far above their actual requirements that is on the white man's scale. I thought that was really, again, flagrant uh, in saying non-white people, we think about compensating them with maybe barely giving them enough to survive. Maybe. That's adequate compensation. That's like nigger wages. White man's wages are beyond what you need to survive so that you can have surplus so that you can build so that you can evolve so that you can have some stability right uh and how you function uh on the planet i just i thought that was a fan again just a very flagrant this is natural this is the way that we should think about the world um let's see oh i thought this was such a great line uh where he says one need but compare the population pressures in France, Germany, Russia, and Japan to realize that even today the real enemy of the dove of peace is not the eagle of pride or the virtue of greed, but the stork. <laughs> I thought that was such a great line. And that is all a, uh, all a quote. Uh, he, he has some great quotes, but for him to even uh, include, and this is from Professor Ra, who is this guy? <laughs> I think we should maybe do some research on this Professor Ross guy because he quotes him so many times and he has so many rich lines like the one that I just read, articulating racism, white supremacy. Maybe if somebody, if you have the, a free moment and the interest to maybe uh, do some research on who this Professor Ross guy is and maybe some of his research, maybe we can you know, do a little extra digging as we proceed. Uh, but I thought that was such a great uh, metaphor 
number one. And again, uh, just to me, it seems to be really solidifying. Like I can see why Dr. Welsing would, you know, really be saying, check this book out, check this book out, because it seems to be really corroborating a lot of her viewpoints uh, in terms of at least the rhetoric that motivates many whites to practice racism, white supremacy, whether it's true, whether or not it's based in fact, this type of rhetoric seems to be very effective uh, and it's consistent. The fact that you hear this same sort of talk today, that you can just hear this over and over and over for years, for decades, for centuries, whites making the same type of argument and it being so effective in galvanizing large numbers of whites all over the world. Just that in and of itself is a huge bit of evidence. Uh, but moving forward, uh, let's see. I will get in one more point and then I see we do have other people who've got a hand in. Um, I thought I think Roz already made a great point about him talking about if we allow non-whites to come to areas, uh, other areas, right, so they can improve their quality of life, uh, then they will just be in a stronger position to make more demands. I thought that was a great point as well. That you know we got to watch this balance of power. If we allow them to get in a more powerful position, this could make our troubles more difficult for us down the road. Uh, let's see next where. I thought this was really interesting where he says he's talking about, again, this is a quote. Um, make sure to see if this is from Professor Ross uh, or not. Uh, no, this is not from Professor Ross. He's quoting from a non-white person here, but he says, um, the, the quote says, uh, they're talking about lower class whites who don't make as much money, right? So he says, uh, but it would be an absolute cruelty to inspire in the white working class, in the white working classes, tastes and aspirations which it is impossible for them to realize uh, and I thought that and this was in the context of talking about competition between uh, these working class whites and Asians and that the Asians uh, as karma was talking about that they can they are a poorer quality breed allegedly but they can do better in bad conditions that's in the context of all this but I thought that was really interesting because I think they do that sort of thing to black people all the time and that thing being uh, to inspire tastes and aspirations which is is impossible to realize i think they do that to black people like as a as a standard matter of procedure right to have all types of you know luxury items and what have you uh clothing and cars and that sort of thing uh, i think one of our listeners is saying that's you know rife in areas like atlanta to inspire that pursuit in life and then you're going to be denied uh, at every turn in the system of racism, white supremacy, that element of cruelty seems to be standard operating procedure. Um, I thought, man, you talk about hooting and howling. Uh, when he has this whole breakdown in the comparison of poor white workers in comparison to Asian workers, non-white workers, and talking about how uh, man, with just the way he says, where he says, where they talk, take the argument and say, we are fittest and, you know, we should be allowed to immigrate and work because we're better workers. And he says that this is, of course, merely clever use of the well-known fallacy, which confuses the terms fittest with best. And then he goes on and he says uh, that... Uh, it should be allowed to drive on another type of down with rich potential. Uh, that this is sophistry as absurd as it is dangerous. Just the the arrogant contempt that he has when he is just putting forth like total 
folly. Like when he's and I, in my opinion, whites. What's dangerous is that whites are able to do this sort of thing all the time. They can just come out and make up, just totally make up something. Just I can go sit in the restroom for five minutes and make up whatever I want to about anything and come out okay weapons of master okay okay bam and then we'll just come out and weapons of master and boom 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 and that's the way that's the way that we'll go okay fine they can do this sort of thing and they do this sort of thing all the time and they can sound real professional they can put on a suit they can put on a nice you know british accent and they can you know use a lot of words <laughs> that uh, I think Mr. Wicket pointed that out that uh, they can have a lot of highfalutin words and Ivy League degrees so they can intimidate you with all of their white authority but at the end of the day they're just lying and they do that so well just all of that I was just cracking up laughing uh, at him you know and the contempt the white arrogance and contempt of it all like again flagrant narcissism dr welsing has a passage in the book where she talks about that uh what uh, last thing i'll get in last thing i'll get in um the last thing i will get in oh man yeah the line where he says uh where he's talking about the rates of um Fertility rates, reproduction rates uh, in 1917, where he's talking about the threat, where he says in 1917, the births of uh, the two races were American, 295, Japanese, 5,000. Comment is superfluous. <laughs> I thought that was just such a, such a uh, well-worded, concise sentence. Uh, the, again, the type of rhetoric that seems to galvanize and support whites to do all kinds of things. This book, I emphasize this at the very beginning, this book, the Immigration Act of 1924, which restricted non-white immigration for about a half a century, a little less than a half a century, uh, not allowing you could not immigrate to the country if you were not white. That was like official doctrine uh, of the land. This book was a part of the rhetoric that inspired that change in law that impacted a lot of non-white people. The same type of rhetoric that can lead to Donald Trump being uh, president, the same type of rhetoric I would submit that, you know, can explain why the purge is a $300 million franchise. I will stop there. If you have commentary, feel free to dial in. We have about 20 minutes before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, 1842. Did you have commentary? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. Um, when I was listening to this particular portion of the book, I was trying to, well, one thing that kind of stuck out to me, like a question that I was having, well, let's say they brought us here and enslaved us and we did that. We built the economy up and all that. When we were so-called freed, I also thought, well, you know, White people can do anything they want to do when they want to do it. There really wouldn't have been much to stop them from, you know, getting rid of us, not necessarily like killing us, but just, I know, you know, they say they had so-called colonies like Liberia and stuff like that, that were like tester colonies, but they didn't even have to do that. If they didn't want us here, that was something that they could have just like done right then. And so then I was like, well, of course, I know they were dependent on our labor. They still needed us. Like all these other kind of factors that are put in, um, have been put in my face as reasons why they kept us here. But then I also listened to the Narcissist podcast um, sometime earlier this week. And then it had me consider like on a, 
psychic level or a psychological level that they needed us here so that they could consistently have a constant supply of narcissistic supply. And what also had me consider that is the, the feeling, and I'll tie it into the book in a second, the feeling that you have when you just ignore whites. Like, I don't know how, I'm always around white people. Where I live, where I work, I'm just always around white people. And they typically lose their cool, like, whether it's outrageously or, like, they just start getting glitchy or they start gripping their jaw or they can't stop looking at me. Like, if I just look right past them and ignore them. And so I was like, well, this is fascinating. Like on a psychic level, they needed needed, and need us here for a consistent, constant narcissist, narcissistic or narcissism supply because they always need that attention. But then all the whites have to feel that they're all better than, like all white people have to feel that they're better than all the non-white people because if the non-white people don't exist, to be better than, then they would have to be, if they're all all narcissistic or have this in them, then they would self-explode or implode or just kill off each other because they'd all have, someone would have to be better than somebody, which was what happened during the dark ages. And so I was like listening to him talk and I'm just like this, I, you know, I don't know him. I can't diagnose him and say that he's a narcissist or anything like that, but it seems very narcissistic. The whole premise of the book that number one, I, and then we are just better than everyone, the chosen people. Um, and then like, we don't like you, but we need you anyway to validate our existence. And so I'm always considering what, you know, why did Dr. Francis Cress Welting um, say we really needed to read this book? And I think at some level, like, yes, we definitely need to know that their populations are dying. You know, we keep having babies, how they're thinking about this, us, how they've laid out the world and all that kind of stuff. But also that I feel like there's an element of pathology and psychology in this that that's really hard to avoid. Like, cause you, I always want to ask these questions. Well, like if you didn't, you know, want to have a so-called mulatto race, don't rape anyone. Don't have sex with us. Simple enough. You know what I mean? Even to this day, like you don't have to, nobody is forcing you to do that. But and then also, we didn't even have to be here, you know. Um, I know at the time, like a lot of people, you know, this is this has been put into us that this is our country and this is our land and stuff like that. We have a right here and all that. But ships and all that were built. It would have been easy to just go ahead and have like a mass deportation and really claim this as a white nation and only white people are here. That could have easily happened too. So then why, you know? And it's like from a psychological level, I don't see there being any reprise or reprieve or uh, respite at all, because if they are narcissistic and their actions and history have shown it to be that to some degree, they're probably all narcissistic psychopaths and sadists, then they would have to continue to um, like, not only like they get off on it. That's the sadist part, but without it, they're they're not anything like even without any people to be better than or to get a narcissistic supply then they don't exist really and you know that and then i also thought because dr well dr welsing would say that the we kicked the albinos out of africa and so that they felt neglected and isolated and now they turned around and you know want to kill all the non-white people 
especially the the black African. So, I mean, that would kind of, I could see why she would say that if we're looking at white people as narcissistic psychopaths, because then that means that they have like a huge void as a people that they can never fill, which I didn't get to read Urugu, but I think that's in Urugu too. Um, and it's kind of like, I just hear that in the whole tone of the book, all this effort and all this work just to be better than somebody um, and justify it by saying, and here's the thing. Uh, oh, another thing that made me say it is uh, there was some passage in the book where he pretty much says, we know we're going to be wiped out. I mean, they can do all that they want to do to try to not be genetically annihilated. But I think that's why it's the rising tide like a tidal wave or something like that, that is inevitably going to crash on the, uh, the coast. Like there's nothing you can really do about it. The, the numbers speak for themselves. Any mathematician or scientist say, Hey, this is what it is. You all are not producing kids. They're still producing kids and inevitably that's it. There's nothing you really can do. And knowing that, I don't know if it's like, maybe it's just a big hoorah. Well, since we're going out, we'll make sure that everybody is screwed up and messed up and confused um, in the process or something like that. But it's really fascinating because even like all white people demand it of non-white people, like expect it and demand it that your attention is constantly on them whenever they are in a space, like even, you know, just in a personal way. And so whether people have read the book or not, that was another thing that made me think, well, it's like all these white people didn't read this book, you know, so they're not really over here thinking about the red man and the, the Negro or Negroid, you know what I mean? Like they're not reading this book, but they don't have to read this book because it's been so proliferated before and it's just in them. Like if the typical white person goes through their day and sees just black people being black doing, you know, like when I say being black, I just mean like, you know, just being and they're going to be constantly met up with what they lack. So they wouldn't have to read it. Like all white people, when they're naked, have to look in the mirror and be like, ew, not to be funny or anything, but to see, you know, the pasty and like they know that, you know what I mean? Or they go to the gym and they see a white male, see the black male and like he's over here, effort, you know, all muscly and all that, you know, or the, the white female sees the black female and she's over here, you know, tone, you know what I mean? Like everywhere that you go and you see non-white people being non-white people and then top it off not paying you any attention right in that moment is enough to have like the book exist in the psychology of white people if that makes any sense without them having had to read the book these people look strong and healthy despite all that we've done to them they keep having kids look at their kids the kids still hold their heads up before our kids walk before our kids talk before our kids we're not having babies they keep having babies like they didn't have to read the book to have to derive the same conclusion. I hope I made some sense. Um, thank you. Very interesting. I think uh, that question was raised last week about uh, why is he using this metaphor of uh, water, tide, the white race will be swamped, etc. Why is he using water as, as a metaphor in describing this uh, non-white problem confronting white power? Uh, I think we have uh, our editor, uh, Mel in the building. Uh, good to hear from you. Wonderful job to you and Universal Alien. Did you have commentary? Thanks. Um, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Um, so for this section, for for this section of Chapter Eleven, I wanted to point. It's pretty quick, but I just wanted to put 
something he's saying in context about, or kind of what he's saying about the Chinese workers and maybe the Indian workers to some extent being able to like endure these crazy conditions. Like on T73, 274 he quotes this, this professor Ross guy. I do not like him according to this book. Um, professor Ross says, quote, because he can better endure spoiled food, poor clothing, foul air, noise, heat, dirt, discomfort, and microbes, unquote. I'm thinking about how spoiled food could be, on one hand, maybe Korean fermented kimchi. There's a lot of fermented soy products in, in China. It's their food. But I'm thinking of European cheese is a fermented product. There's some very strange cheeses out there. There's European wine. Um, when he says poor clothing, that, again, Chinese people can endure better than white people, I'm thinking of the original corset, which is a structure I'm, I believe, designed to practically break your ribcage, and which was used for hundreds of years in Europe, even to this day. Even when he says noise, I, I mean, immediately jumped to my mind with hair metal music, but that's, that's not the 1920s when Stoddard is around. But when he's saying that Asian people can endure these conditions that no humans can endure i just think that's that's obviously a, a man-made thing they wouldn't normally endure these things on a daily basis of, of poor clothing or foul air if that exists that seems to be the conditions that white supremacists would put them in which leads me to my second point that um when he is like they can no no person can endure these conditions because in the 1920s i'm guessing when Stoddard is writing this book about 10 years prior people are getting very active to my knowledge or at least it's becoming way more aware of child labor laws in the united states and these are um these are all children but in particular white children get highlighted and we're as working in these horrible textile mills where the windows aren't open and it's just dusty inside and they're sewing with they're using machines that are five times their height um, for really long amounts of time in the day, these children are working, these white children. And so when he's talking about how Chinese people can endure these conditions way better than the white man, and that's what makes them better workers, I'm thinking white people don't even, they, they just care about white supremacy at the end of the day. They don't even provide good working conditions for their own children. I mean, I guess you could call it white sacrifice, but I thought that was pretty interesting. They they make these conditions, and another part where I thought they make these conditions was on two page seven, on page two seventy five, where um, they talk about the inexorable processes thus described by an Australian, a very random Australian, as Gus said, was just these just random Australians, random observers from places and not no names. Um, but the random Australian says, quote, the colored races become agencies of e economic disturbance and social degradation. They sap and destroy the upward tendencies of the poorer whites. The latter, instead of always having something better to look at and strive at, have a lower standard of living, health, and cleanliness set before them, and the results are disastrous. Um, yeah, they set these standards. Um, and my last point was about when he's talking about how Asian people are dying to get into white land. They're, they're dying to get into the United States to work in parts of Europe and stuff like that. And a, a part of the context that's missing for me is the part that white people play in lying to these people. Um, I know for a fact that there's a number of, it's not to say that there's no Indian people trying to leave India. I mean, this is the time period. I mean, Indian, dark, darker skinned Indian people have 
been mistreated since as far as I can remember. Um, and Chinese people, maybe they want to spread out too. But to a large extent, there are white people in these countries at this time and for plenty of years prior, lying to these people, telling them about these great working conditions they're going to come to. You'll only come here for this long. You can bring as many people as you want. The journey is safe. You'll get paid fairly. They're saying all these lies to these people to get them on these boats. They're saying they'll pay them way more than they, they will. And then once they get on the boat, thousands of them die um, and then they get to the location and many of them can never go home. I'm thinking of uh, the Indian coolie and Chinese coolie system here that brought people from India and China to the um, white areas or just to the taken over areas like Fiji um, to work pretty much to death. Um, so when he's talking about people are dying to get out of the country, I'm like, okay, but you're lying to them, telling them about how great the conditions are going to be if they leave the country. So I think to some extent they created that fervor if it existed at all. Um, and that he's not really pointing that out at, at all. And there, if there's any eagerness really for them to leave, um, that's all my points right now. I think I might leave my second parts for the rest um, afterward. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Um, that's important as well. I think very important, uh, both from like 1920 when this book was published and, and contemporary in a contemporary sense as well. Uh, when you do have non-white people that have been held in these terrible conditions and they're trying to get to areas of the world where they're predominantly filled with whites, better resources, uh, better quality of life. Uh, it's whites that are responsible for them being in that position to begin with. And that gets conveniently, it's not even just a Stoddard thing. That's standard operating procedure to just, uh, obscure that or find some way of blaming the heathen cannibal dark people, you know, for their problems. Um, this professor Ross guy, he wrote a paper, uh, called the, the causes of race superiority. And I think, uh, I think Lothrop Stoddard read this document, um, where apparently this was widely widely uh, discussed and talked about at the time. This is like the early part of the 20th uh, century. Uh, if anyone can get a hand on it, that might be something interesting to check out because he quotes him so much. Uh, this Professor E.A. Ross uh, dude, he quotes him so much, particularly this week it seemed like he quoted him a lot. Uh, if you know someone can lay a finger on it, if I find it myself, I'll share and then we can kind of check that out and uh, as we go along. But that's, again, that's what I said. Whites, they are so good at this sort of thing on so many levels where they can just pull out all of these folks. This guy's a professor, so he's a doctorate. And I, uh, Madison Grant, he's for you could just bring out all these guys who are just race soldiers, racists. But hey, I'm an Ivy League professor. You know, I have a degree and I'm a professor. I'm a journalist. I'm a historian. So I have white power. I have white authority when I come out in whatever I say. And, you know, I've read a few books, so my vocabulary is extensive. Uh, so I can sound real eloquent uh, in how I go about putting my arguments together. And they can do that all the time and just lie and just give you the most bogus thing imaginable. Uh, did we have uh, other folks we're going to get in uh, commentary before we get to the second audio segment? Anybody else have commentary? Everybody says. Hey, Gus. Uh, oh, yeah. Go ahead, sir. That article, uh, is, is it uh, Edward Ross? I'm not sure what his first name is. I just keep seeing E.A. Ross. So, uh, the causes okay. of race superiority? Yes. Uh, Dr. Edward A. Ross, professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska. I found the article. 
Oh, grand. Let's check it out. Let's check it out. You can, uh, I don't know if you, you can email it until justice at gmail.com or if we're on Facebook or whatever, but yeah, let's check it out. Give me, give me a couple minutes. I'll send it to you. Take your time, sir. That'll be grand. I'll share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, were you, were you finished, sir? Yes, sir. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I had a couple of things. I wanted to piggyback off of um, what the previous female caller um, was discussing because I found that where I live in New Jersey, I've come across African immigrants that work at gas stations here. And I've had two of them tell my wife and myself stories about how they got here. And what they tell them is exactly what she said, that they, um, they, pay, they pay their their way here, and they basically tell these Africans that they have to work off the plane ticket and that within a certain number of years, they'll work off their ticket and they're going to make all of this money. And if they want to go to college, they can do all of this wonderful stuff. And when they get here, they're getting like pennies, just basically pennies, and they're being made terribly mistreated they're usually put in rooms they don't even get like a actual apartment or anything they usually live in rooms and they're just abused essentially and they're away from their families and they don't make very much where they can send stuff back because that's just that's just quite a few people i know from the continent send money back to their relatives just like my parents would send money and goods back to their relatives in trinidad quite regularly um so it's something that i find to be kind of like epidemic but it's something that's happening on the down low so i just want us to confirm that that's happening like right now 2016 to you know to, to at least african people who i personally encountered um also i found <clears throat> excuse me a brief quote that he wrote on here's the page i just had it oh yeah it's on page uh 159 Excuse me, he writes, rigorous exclusion of colored immigrants is thus vitally necessary for white peoples. Unfortunately, this exclusion policy will not be easily maintained. Colored population pressure is inconsistent, I mean, is insistent and increasing, while the matter is still further complicated by the fact that while no white community can gain colored gained by colored immigration, white individual employers of labor may, may be great gainers and hence often tend to put private interests above racial duty. Barring a handful of sincere but misguided cosmopolitan enthusiasts, it is unscrupulous business interests which are behind every white proposal to relax the exclusion laws protecting white areas. That is codified white supremacy right there. They're basically telling you, keep all the colors out, all the niggas out, um, make sure that they do not get the jobs. Race comes first. Like that's why I said this book is like the Bible of white supremacy. They're, they're literally writing the the code out, like explicitly writing it out. And I think because this was written in the 1920s, um, it's at a time where that's just the way it was. Just like you know, even before that, in the during the you know the slavery period, um, it was just blatant white supremacy because whites were in such brutal physical power over non-white people that they could talk about you and say every all of the diabolical plans for you they'll lay it out right there in front of you and then execute it and you couldn't do anything about it and back in the 20s i think it was a similar mindset and i think at that point there was a turning point because obviously he makes it clear that um you know white people were disappearing back then like they're disappearing now for me they're not disappearing fast enough but ultimately there was a fear of that and that drove him to write this book. And I think that this literally is like the, the, the DNA code of white supremacy, just lying, 
obfuscating facts about who and what white people are, obfuscating facts about who and what non-white people are, all of these wacky categories and all of this propaganda about the prowess of white people, but yet white people are dying off and that, you know, non-white people are, are mongrels and, and savages and we can live in these subhuman conditions and, you know, and strive, excuse me, thrive according to them because that's how we're genetically designed, yet we're inferior to them. It's insanity, but it's the perfect book of white supremacy in my opinion. Thank you. For sure. Um, we will get to the second audio segment. Uh, it's a little bit longer than our normal uh, second audio segments. They're normally about 30 minutes, so this is about 40, a little more than 40 minutes, but not that big a deal. We should still have ample time for folks to share. I thought the, the passage that we ended with that staggered me a bit where he says nothing is more striking than the instinctive and instantaneous solidarity which binds together Australians Afrikaners, Californians, and Canadians into a sacred union at the mere whisper of Asiatic immigration. That is, wow, I was staggered. It took me a moment to be like, that is eloquently constructed. Just make it plain. Uh, white, and that's why I don't talk about racism or white supremacy as being an American issue or an Australian issue, a Brazilian issue, a South African issue. It is the entire world, the entire known universe. Whites are about dominating, terrorizing white power forever, wherever. Second audio segment, Lothrop Stoddard, The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. Segment number two, Context of White Supremacy. Everywhere, the slogan is the same. Quote, the white Australia idea, end quote, cries an Antipodian writer, quote, is not a political theory, it is a gospel. It counts for more than religion, for more than flag, because the flag waves over all kinds of aces. For more than the empire, for the empire is mostly black or brown or yellow, is largely heathen, largely polygamous, largely cannibal. In fact, the white Australia doctrine is based on the necessity of choosing between national existence and national suicide." End quote. Quote, White Australia, end quote, writes another Australian in similar vein, quote, Australians of all classes and political affiliations regard the policy much as Americans regard the Constitution. It is their most articulate article of faith. The reason is not far to seek. Australian civilization is little more than a partial fringe round the continental coastline of 12,210 miles. The coast and its hinterlands are settled and developed although not completely for the entire circumference. In the center of the country lie the apparently illimitable wastes of the never-never-land, occupied entirely by scrub, snakes, sand, and blackfellows. The almost manless regions of the island continent are a terrible menace. It is impossible to police at all adequately such an enormous area, and the peoples of Asia, beating at the bars that confine them, rousing at last from their age-long slumber, are chafing at the restraints imposed upon their free entry into the settlement of such uninhabited, undeveloped lands. End quote. So the Australians, five million whites in a far off continent as large as the United States, defy clamoring Asia and swear to keep Australia a white man's land. Says Professor Pearson, quote, We are guarding the last part of the world in which the higher races can increase and live freely for the higher civilization. 
We are denying the yellow race nothing but what it can find in the home of its birth, or in countries like the Indian archipelago, where the white man can never live except as an exotic. End quote. So, Australia has raised drastic immigration barriers conceived on the lines laid down by Sir Henry Parks many years ago. Quote, it is our duty to preserve the type of the British nation, and we ought not for any consideration whatever to admit any element that would detract from, or in any appreciable degree lower, that admirable type of nationality. We should not encourage or admit amongst us any class of persons, whatever, whom we are not prepared to advance to all our franchises, to all our privileges as citizens, and all our social rights, including the right of marriage. I maintain that no class of persons should be admitted here who cannot come amongst us, take up all our rights, perform on a ground of equality all our duties, and share in our august and lofty work of founding a free nation. End quote. From Canada rises an equally uncompromising determination. Listen to Mr. Vrooman, a high official of British Columbia. Quote, our province is becoming orientalized, and one of our most important questions is whether it is to remain a British province or become an oriental colony, for we have three races demanding seats in our drawing room, as well as places at our board, the Japanese, Chinese, and East Indian. End quote. And a well-known Canadian writer, Miss Lout, thus defines the issue. Quote, if the resident Hindu had a vote and a British subject, why not? And if he could break down the Immigration Exclusion Act, he could outvote the native-born Canadian in 10 years. In Canada, there are 5,500,000 native-born, 2 million aliens. In India are hundreds of millions breaking the dikes of their own natural barriers and ready to flood any open land. Take down the barriers on the Pacific coast, and there would be 10 million Hindus in Canada in 10 years. End quote. Our Pacific coast takes precisely the same attitude. Says Chester H. Rowell, a California writer, quote, There is no right way to solve a race problem except to stop it before it begins. The Pacific coast is the frontier of the white man's world the culmination of the westward migration, which is the white man's whole history. It would remain the frontier so long as we regard it as such, no longer. Unless it is maintained there, there is no other line at which it can be maintained without more effort than American government and American civilization are able to sustain. The multitudes of Asia are awake after their long sleep, as the multitudes of Europe were when our present flood of immigration began. We know what could happen on the Asiatic side by what did happen and what is happening on the European side. On that side, we have survived. But against Asiatic immigration, we could not survive. The numbers who would come would be greater than we could insist. And the races who would come are those which we could never absorb. The permanence not merely of American civilization, but of the white race on this continent depends on our not doing on the Pacific side what we have done on the Atlantic coast, end quote. Says another Californian, Justice Burnett, quote, The Pacific states comprise an empire of vast potentialities and capable of supporting a population of many millions. Those now living there propose that it shall continue to be a home for them and their children, and that they shall not be overwhelmed and driven eastward by an ever-increasing yellow and brown flood, end quote. 
all economic arguments are summarily put aside. They say, writes another Californian, quote, that our fruit orchards, mines, and seed farms cannot be worked without them, oriental laborers. It were better that they never be developed than that our white laborers be degraded and driven from the soil. The same arguments were used a century and more ago to justify the importation of African labor. As it is now, no self-respecting white laborer will work beside the Mongolian upon any terms. The proposition, whether we shall have white or yellow labor on the Pacific coast, must soon be settled, for we cannot have both. If the Mongolian is permitted to occupy the land, the white laborer from the east of the Rockies will not come here. He will shun California as he would a pestilence, and who can blame him? End quote. The middle as well as the working class is imperiled by any large number of Orientals, for, quote, the presence of the Japanese trader means that the white man must either go out of business or abandon his standard of comfort and sink to the level of the Asiatic, who will sleep under his counter and subsist upon food that would mean starvation to his white rival, end quote. Indeed, Californian assertions that Oriental immigration menaces not merely the coast but the whole continent seem well taken. This view was officially endorsed by Mr. Caminetti, a Commissioner General of Immigration, who testified before a Congressional Committee some years ago, quote, Asiatic immigration is a menace to the whole country, and particularly to the Pacific Coast. The danger is general. No part of the United States is immune. The Chinese are now spread over the entire country, and the Japanese want to encroach. The Chinese have become so acclimated that they can prosper in any part of our country. To register the Asiatic laborers who would come into the country, it is impossible to protect ourselves from persons who come in surreptitiously. End quote. Fortunately, the majority of thinking Americans are today convinced that Oriental immigration must not be tolerated. Most of our leading men have so expressed themselves. For example, Woodrow Wilson, during his first presidential campaign, declared on May 3, 1912, quote, In the matter of Chinese and Japanese coolie immigration, I stand for the national policy of exclusion. The whole question is one of assimilation of diverse races. We cannot make a homogeneous population of a people who do not blend with the Caucasian race. Their lower standard of living as laborers will crowd out the white agriculturalists and is in other fields a most serious industrial menace. The success of free democratic institutions demands of our people education, intelligence, and patriotism, and the state should protect them against unjust and impossible competition. Remunerative labor is the basis of contentment. Democracy rests on the equality of the citizen. Oriental coolism will give us another race problem to solve, and surely we have had our lesson. End quote. The necessity for rigid Oriental exclusion is nowhere better exemplified than by the alarm felt today in California by the extraordinarily high birth rate of its Japanese residents. There are probably not over 150,000 Japanese in the whole United States, their numbers being kept down by the Gentlemen's Agreement entered into by the Japanese and American governments. But, few though they are, they bring in their women, and these women bring many children into the world. The California Japanese settle in compact agricultural colonies, which so teem with babies that a leading California organ, 
the Los Angeles Times thus seriously discusses the matter. Quote, there may have been a time when an anti-Japanese land bill would have limited Japanese immigration, but such a law would be impotent now to keep native Japanese from possessing themselves of the choicest agricultural and horticultural land in California. For there are now more than 30,000 children in the state of Japanese parentage, native-born. They possess all the rights of leasing and ownership held by white children born here. The birth statistics seem to prove that the danger is not from the Japanese soldiers, but from the picture brides. The fruitfulness of those brides is almost uncanny. Here is a Japanese problem of sufficient gravity to merit serious consideration. We are threatened with an overproduction of Japanese children. First come the men, then the picture brides, then the families. If California is to be preserved for the next generation as a white man's country, there must be some movement started that will restrict the Japanese birth rate in California. When a condition is reached in which two children of Japanese parentage are born in some districts for every white child, it is about time something else was done than making speeches about it in the American Senate. If the same present birth ratio were maintained for the next 10 years, there would be 150,000 children of Japanese descent born in California in 1929 and but 40,000 white children. And in 1949, the majority of the population of California would be Japanese, ruling the state. End quote. The alarm of our California contemporary may, in this particular instance, be exaggerated. Nevertheless, when we remember the practically unlimited expansive possibilities of even small human groups under favorable conditions, the picture drawn contains no features inherently impossible of realization. What is absolutely certain is that any wholesale oriental influx would inevitably doom the whites, first of the Pacific coast and later of the whole United States, to social sterilization and ultimate racial extinction. Thus, all those newer regions of the white world won by the white expansion of the last four centuries are alike menaced by the colored migration peril. Whether these regions will be underdeveloped, underpopulated, frontier marches like Australia and British Columbia, or older and better populated countries like the United States. And let not Europe, the white broodland, the heart of the white world, think itself immune. In the last analysis, the self-same peril menaces it too. This has long been recognized by far-sighted men. For many years, economists and sociologists have discussed the possibility of Asiatic immigration into Europe. Low as wages and living standards are in many European countries, they are yet far higher than in the congested East, while the rapid progress of social betterment throughout Europe must further widen the gap and make the white continent seem a more and more desirable haven for the swarming, black-haired bread-seekers of China, India, and Japan. Indeed. A few observers of modern conditions have come to the conclusion that this invasion of Europe by Asiatic labor is unescapable, and they have drawn the most pessimistic conclusions. For example, more than a decade ago, an English writer asserted gloomily, quote, No level-headed thinker can imagine that it will be always possible to prevent the free migration of intelligent races, representing in the aggregate half the peoples of the world, should those people actively conceive that their welfare demands that they should seek employment in Europe. In these days of rapid transit of aviation, such a measure of repression is impossible. 
We shall not be destroyed, perhaps, by the sudden onrush of invaders, as Rome was overwhelmed by the northern hordes. We shall be gradually subdued and absorbed by the peaceful penetration of more virile races. End quote. Now, mark you, all that I have thus far written concerning colored immigration has been written without reference to the late war. In other words, the colored migration peril would have been just as grave as I have described it, even if the white world were still as strong as in the years before 1914. But the war has, of course, immensely aggravated an already critical situation. The war has shaken both the material and psychological bases of white resistance to colored infiltration, while it has correspondingly strengthened Asiatic hopes and hardened Asiatic determination to break down the barriers debarring the colored men from white lands. Asia's perception of what the war signified in this respect was instantaneous. The war was not a month old before Japanese journalists were suggesting a relaxation of Asiatic exclusion laws in the British colonies as a natural corollary to the Anglo-Japanese alliance and Anglo-Japanese comradeship in arms. Said the Tokyo Mainichi Deupo in August 1914, quote, We are convinced that it is a matter of the utmost importance that Britons beyond the seas should make a better attempt at fraternizing with Japan, as better relations between the English-speaking races and Japan will have a vital bearing on the destiny of the empire. There is no reason why the British colonies fronting on the Pacific should not actively participate in the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Britain needs population for her surplus land, and Japan needs land for her surplus population. This fact alone should draw the two races closer together. Moreover, the British people have ample capital but deficiency of labor, while it is the reverse with Japan. The harmonious cooperation of Britain and her colonies with Japan ensures safety to British and Japanese interests alike. Without such cooperation, Japan and Great Britain are both unsafe. End quote. What this cooperation implies was very frankly stated by the Japan magazine at about the same date. Quote, there is nothing that would do so much to bind East and West firmly together as the opening of the British colonies to Japanese immigration. Then, indeed, Britain would be a lion endowed with wings. Large numbers of Japanese in the British colonies would mean that Britain would have the assistance of Japan in the protection of her colonies. But, if an anti-Japanese agitation is permitted, both countries will be making the worst instead of the best of the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Thus, it would be allowed to make Japan an enemy instead of a friend. It seems that the British people, both at home and in the colonies, are not yet alive to the importance of the policy suggested, and it is, therefore, pointed out and emphasized before it is too late." End quote. The covert threat embodied in those last lines was a forerunner of the storm of anti-white abuse which rose from the more bellicose sections of the Japanese press as soon as it became evident that neither the British Dominions nor the United States were going to relax their immigration laws. Some of this anti-white comment directed particularly against the Anglo-Saxon peoples I have already noted in the second chapter of this book. But such comment as bears directly on immigration matters I have reserved for discussion at this point. For example, the Tokyo Yorudzu wrote early in 1916, quote, Japan has been most faithful to the requirements of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, and yet the treatment meted out to our countrymen in Canada, Australia, 
and other British colonies has been a glaring insult to us. End quote. A year later, a writer in the Japan magazine declared, quote, The agitation against Japanese in foreign countries must cease, even if Japan has to take up arms to stop it. She should not allow her immigration to be treated as a race question. End quote. And in 1919, the Yorudzu thus paid its respects to the exclusionist activity of our Pacific Coast states. Quote, Whatever may be their object, their actions are more despicable than those of the Germans, whose barbarities they attacked as worthy of Huns. At least, these Americans are barbarians who are on a lower plane of civilization than the Japanese. End quote. The war produced no letting down of immigration barriers along the white world's exposed frontiers, where men are fully alive to the peril. But the war did produce temporary waverings of sentiment in the United States, while in Europe, colored labor was imported wholesale in ways which may have ominous consequences. Our own acute labor shortage during the war, particularly in agriculture, led many Americans, especially employers, to cast longing eyes at the tempting reservoirs of Asia. Typical of this attitude is an article by Hudson Maxim in the spring of 1918. Mr. Maxim urged the importation of a million Chinese to solve our farming and domestic service problems. Quote, if it is possible, end quote, he wrote, quote, by the employment of Chinese methods of intensive farming to increase the production of our lands to such an extent how stupendous would be the benefit of wide introduction of such methods. The exhausted lands of New England could be made to produce like a tropical garden. The vast areas of the Great West that are today not producing 10% of what they ought to produce could be made to produce the other 90% by the introduction of Chinese labor. The average American does not like farming. The sons of the prosperous farmers do not take kindly to the tilling of the soil with their own hands. They prefer the excitement and the diversions and stimulus of the life of city and town, and they leave the farm for the office and factory. Chinese, imported as agricultural laborers and household servants, would solve the agricultural labor problem and the servant problem, and we should have the best agricultural workers in the world and the best household servants in the world, in unlimited numbers." End quote. Now I submit that such arguments, however well-intentioned, are nothing short of race treason. If there be one truth which history has proved, it is the solemn truth that those who work the land will ultimately own the land. Furthermore, the countryside is the seedbed from which the city populations are normally recruited. The one bright spot in our otherwise dubious ethnic future is the fact that most of our unassimilable aliens have stopped in the towns, while many of the most assimilable immigrants have settled in the country, thus reinforcing, rather than replacing, our Native American rural population. Any suggestion which advocates the settlement of our countryside by Asiatics and the deliberate driving of our native stocks to the towns, there to be sterilized and eliminated, is simply unspeakable. Fortunately, such fatal counsels were with us never acted upon, albeit they should be remembered as lurking perils which will probably be urged again in future times of stress. But during Europe's war agony, yellow, brown, and black men were imported wholesale, not only for the armies but also for the factories and fields. 
These colored aliens have mostly been shipped back to their homes. Nevertheless, they have carried with them vivid recollections of the marvelous West. And the tale will spread to the remotest corners of the colored world, stirring hard-pressed colored bread-seekers to distant ventures. Furthermore, Europe has had a practical demonstration of the colored aliens' manifold usefulness. And if Europe's troubles are prolonged, the colored man may be increasingly employed there both in peace and war. Even during the war, the French and English working classes felt the pressure of colored competition. Race feeling grew strained, and presently both England and France witnessed to them unwanted spectacles of race riots in their port towns, where the colored aliens were most thickly gathered. An American observer thus describes the, quote, breaking of the exclusion walls erected against the Chinese, end quote. Quote, in London, one Wednesday evening, 24 months ago, i.e. in 1916, there was a mass meeting held on the corner of Pigott Street, Limehouse, to protest against the influx of John Chinaman into bonnie old England. The London navvies that night heard a protest against the Chinese invasion of Britain. They knew that down on the London docks, there were two Chinamen to every white man since the coming of war. They knew that many of these yellow aliens were married. They knew, too, that a big Chinese restaurant had just opened down the West India Dock Road. The Sailors and Firemen's Union, one of the most powerful in England, carried the protest into the Trades Union Congress held at Birmingham. There, alarm was voiced at the steady increase in the number of Chinese hands on Britain's ships. It was an increase, true, since the stress of war times had begun to try Britain. But what England's sons of the seven seas wanted to know was, when is this orientalizing of the British marine to stop? The seamen's unions were willing to do their bit for John Bull, but they wondered what was going to happen after the coming of peace. Would the Chinese continue to man John Bull's ships? Such is one manifestation of the decisive lifting of gates and barriers that has taken place since the white world went to war. Today, the Chinese, for decades finding a wall in every white man's country, are numbered by the tens of thousands in the service of the Allies. They have made good. They are a war factor. All told, 200,000 Chinese are carrying on in the war zone, laboring behind the lines, in munition works and factories, manning ships. What will happen when peace comes upon this red world, a world turned topsy-turvy by the white man's great war? which has taken John Chinaman from Shantung, Chi Li, and Quang Tung to that battlefield in France. That makes the drafting of China's manpower one of the most supremely important events in the Great War. The family of nations is taking on a new meaning. John Chinaman overseas has a place in it. As Italian harvest labor before the war went to and from Argentina for a few months' work, so the Chinese have gone to Europe under contract and go home again. Perhaps this action will have a bearing on the solution of the Far West's agricultural labor problem. Do not believe for a moment that the armies of Chinese in Europe will forget the lessons taught them in the West. When these sons of Han come home, the Great War will be found to have given birth to a new East. End quote. So ends our survey. It has girdled the globe. And the lesson is always the same. Colored migration is a universal peril menacing every part of the white world. 
Nowhere can the white man endure colored competition. Everywhere the East can underlie the West. The grim truth of the matter is this. The whole white race is exposed, immediately or ultimately, to the possibility of social sterilization and final replacement or absorption by the teeming colored races. What this unspeakable catastrophe would mean for the future of the planet and how the peril may be averted will form the subject of my concluding pages. Chapter 12. The Crisis of the Ages Ours is a solemn moment. We stand at a crisis, the supreme crisis of the ages. For unnumbered millenniums, man has toiled upward from the dank jungles of savagery toward glorious heights, which his mental and spiritual potentialities give promise that he shall attain. His path has been slow and wavering. Time and again, he has lost his way and plunged into deep valleys. Man's trail is littered with the wrecks of dead civilizations and dotted with the graves of promising peoples, stricken by an untimely end. Humanity has thus suffered many a disaster. Yet, none of these disasters were fatal because they were merely local. Those wrecked civilizations and blighted peoples were only parts of a larger whole. Always, some strong barbarians, endowed with rich, unspoiled heredities, caught the falling torch and bore it onward flaming high once more. Out of the prehistoric shadows, the white races pressed to the front and proved in a myriad ways their fitness for the hegemony of mankind. Gradually, they forged a common civilization. Then, when vouchsafed their unique opportunity of oceanic mastery four centuries ago, they spread over the earth, filling its empty spaces with their superior breeds and assuring to themselves an unparalleled paramountcy of numbers and dominion. Three centuries later, the whites took a fresh leap forward. The 19th century was a new age of discovery, this time into the realms of science. The hidden powers of nature were unveiled. Incalculable energies were tamed to human use. Terrestrial distance was abridged, and at last the planet was integrated under the hegemony of a single race with a common civilization. The prospects were magnificent, the potentialities of progress apparently unlimited. Yet there were commensurate perils, towering heights, mean abysmal depths, while the very possibility of supreme success implies the possibility of supreme failure. All these marvelous achievements were due solely to superior heredity and the mere maintenance of what had been won depended absolutely upon the prior maintenance of race values. Civilization of itself means nothing. It is merely an effect whose cause is the creative urge of superior germ plasm. Civilization is the body, the race is the soul. Let the soul vanish and the body molders into an inanimate dust from which it came. Two things are necessary for the continued existence of a race. It must remain itself, and it must breed its best. Every race is the result of ages of development, which evolves specialized capacities that make that race what it is and render it capable of creative achievement. These specialized capacities, which particularly mark the superior races, being relatively recent developments, are highly unstable. They are what biologists call recessive characters. That is, they are not nearly so dominant as the older, generalized characters which races inherit from remote ages and which have therefore been more firmly stamped upon the germplasm. Hence, when a highly specialized stock interbreeds with a different stock, 
the newer, less stable, specialized characters are bred out. The variation, no matter how great its potential value to human evolution, being irretrievably lost. This occurs even in the mating of two superior stocks, if these stocks are widely dissimilar in character. The valuable specializations of both breeds cancel out, and the mixed offspring tend strongly to revert to generalized mediocrity. And, of course, the more primitive the type is, the more prepotent it is. This is why crossings with the Negro are uniformly fatal. Whites, Amerindians, or Asiatics all are alike vanquished by the invincible preponderancy of the more primitive, generalized, and lower Negro blood. There is no immediate danger of the world being swamped by black blood, but there is a very imminent danger that the white stocks may be swamped by Asiatic blood. The white man's very triumphs have evoked this danger. His virtual abolition of distance has destroyed the protection which nature once conferred. Formerly, mankind dwelt in such dispersed isolation that wholesale contact of distant, diverse stocks was practically impossible. But with the development of cheap and rapid transportation, nature's barriers are down. Unless man erects and maintains artificial barriers, the various races will increasingly mingle, and the inevitable result will be the supplanting or absorption of the higher by the lower types. We can see this process working out in almost every phase of modern migration. The white immigration in Latin America is the exception which proves the rule. That particular migration is, of course, beneficent since it means the influx of relatively high types into undeveloped lands sparsely populated by types either no higher or much lower than the new arrivals. But almost everywhere else, whether we consider inter-white migrations or colored encroachments on white lands, the net result is an expansion of lower and a concentration of higher stocks, the process being thus a dysgenic one. Even in Asia, the evils of modern migration are beginning to show. The Japanese government has been obliged to prohibit the influx of Chinese and Korean coolies who were undercutting Japanese labor and thus undermining the economic basis of Japanese life. Furthermore, modern migration is itself only one aspect of a still more fundamental dysgenic trend. The whole course of modern urban and industrial life is dysgenic. Over and above immigration, the tendency is toward a replacement of the more valuable by the less valuable elements of the population. All over the civilized world, racial values are diminishing, and the logical end of this dysgenic process is racial bankruptcy and the collapse of civilization. Now, why is all this? It is primarily because we have not yet adjusted ourselves to the radically new environment into which our epochal scientific discoveries led us a century ago. Such adaptation as we have effected has been almost wholly on the material side. The no less sweeping idealistic adaptations which the situation calls for have not been made. Hence, modern civilization has been one-sided, abnormal, unhealthy, and nature is exacting penalties which will increase in severity until we either fully adapt or finally perish. Finally perish, that is the exact alternative which confronts the white race. For white civilization is today conterminous with the white race. The civilizations of the past were local. They were confined to a particular people or group of peoples. If they failed, there were always some unspoiled, well-endowed barbarians to step forward and carry on. But today, there are no more white barbarians. The earth has grown small, and men are everywhere in close touch. 
If white civilization goes down, the white race is irretrievably ruined. It will be swamped by the triumphant colored races, who will obliterate the white man by elimination or absorption. What has taken place in Central Asia, once a white and now a brown or yellow land, will take place in Australia, Europe, and America. Not today, nor yet tomorrow, perhaps not for generations, but surely in the end. If the present drift be not changed, we whites are all ultimately doomed. Unless we set our house in order, the doom will sooner or later overtake us all. And that would mean that the race obviously endowed with the greatest creative ability, the race which had achieved most in the past and which gave the richer promise for the future, had passed away, carrying with it to the grave those potencies upon which the realization of man's highest hopes depends. A million years of human evolution might go uncrowned, and Earth's supreme life product, man, might never fulfill his potential destiny. This is why we today face the crisis of the ages. To many minds, the mere possibility of such a catastrophe may seem unthinkable, yet a dispassionate survey of the past shows that it is not only possible, but probable if present conditions go on unchanged. The whole history of life, both human and subhuman, teaches us that nature will not condone disobedience. That, as I have already phrased it, no living being stands above her law, and protozoan or demigod, if they transgress, alike must die. Now we have transgressed, grievously transgressed, and we are suffering grievous penalties. But pain is really kind. Pain is the importunate toxin which rouses to dangerous realities and spurs to the seeking of a cure. As a matter of fact, we are confusedly aware of our evil plight, and legion are the remedies today proposed. Some of these are mere quack nostrums. Others contain valuable remedial properties. To be sure, there is probably no one curative agent, since our troubles are complex and magic elixirs heal only in the realm of dreams. But one element should be fundamental to all the compoundings of the social pharmacopoeia. That element is blood. It is clean, virile, genius-bearing blood, streaming down the ages through the unerring action of heredity, which, in anything like a favorable environment, will multiply itself, solve our problems, and sweep us on to higher and nobler destinies. What we today need, above all else, is a changed attitude of mind, a recognition of the supreme importance of heredity, not merely in scientific treaties, but in the practical ordering of the world's affairs. We are where we are today primarily because we have neglected this vital principle, because we have concerned ourselves with dead things instead of with living things. This disregard of heredity is perhaps not strange. It is barely a generation since its fundamental importance was scientifically established, and the world's conversion to even the most vital truth takes time. In fact, we also have much to unlearn. A little while ago, we were taught that all men were equal and that good conditions could, of themselves, quickly perfect mankind. The seductive charm of these dangerous fallacies lingers and makes us loath to put them resolutely aside. Fortunately, we now know the truth. At last, we have been vouchsafed clear insight into the laws of life. We now know that men are not, and never will be, equal. We know that the environment and education can develop only what heredity brings. 
we know that the acquirements of individuals are either not inherited at all or are inherited in so slight a degree as to make no perceptible difference from generation to generation. In other words, we now know that heredity is paramount in human evolution, all other things being secondary factors. This basic truth is already accepted by large numbers of thinking men and women all over the civilized world, and if it becomes firmly fixed in the popular consciousness, it will work nothing short of a revolution in the ordering of the world's affairs. For race betterment is such an intensely practical matter. When people come to realize that the quality of the population is the source of all their prosperity, progress, security, and even existence, when they realize that a single genius may be worth more in actual dollars than a dozen gold mines, while, conversely, racial decline spells material impoverishment and decay, when such things are really believed, we shall see much-abused eugenics actually molding social programs and political policies. Were the white world today really convinced of the supreme importance of race values? How long would it take to stop debasing immigration, reform social abuses that are killing out the fittest strains, and put to an end the feuds which have just sent us through hell and threatened to send us promptly back again? Well, perhaps our change of heart may come sooner than now appears. The horrors of the war, the disappointment of the peace, the terror of Bolshevism, and the rising tide of color have knocked a good deal of the nonsense out of us, and have given multitudes a hunger for realities who were before content with a diet of phrases. Said wise old Benjamin Franklin, quote, Dame experience sets a clear school, but fools will have no other. End quote. Our course at the Dame School is already well underway and promises to be exceeding clear. Only, it is to be hoped our education will be rapid for time presses and the hour is grave. If certain lessons are not learned and acted upon shortly, we may be overwhelmed by irreparable disasters and all our clear schooling will go for naught. What are the things we must do promptly if we were to avert the worst? This irreducible minimum runs about as follows. First and foremost, the wretched Versailles business will have to be thoroughly revised. As it stands, dragon's teeth have been sown over both Europe and Asia, and unless they be plucked up, they will presently grow a crop of cataclysms which will seal the white world's doom. Secondly, some sort of provincial understanding must be arrived at between the white world and renascent Asia. We whites will have to abandon our tacit assumption of permanent domination over Asia, while Asiatics will have to forego their dreams of migration to white lands and penetration of Africa and Latin America. Unless some such understanding is arrived at, the world will drift into a gigantic race war, and genuine race war means war to the knife. Such a hideous catastrophe should be abhorrent to both sides. Nevertheless, Asia should be given clearly to understand that we cannot permit either migration to white lands or penetration of the non-Asiatic tropics, and that, for these matters, we prefer to fight to a finish rather than yield to a finish, because our finish is precisely what surrender on these points would mean. Thirdly, even within the white world, migrations of lower human types like those which have worked such havoc in the United States must be rigorously curtailed. Such migrations upset standards, sterilize better stocks, increase low types, and compromise national futures more than war, revolutions, or native deterioration. 
Such are the things which simply must be done if we are to get through the next few decades without convulsions, which may render impossible the white world's recovery. These things will not bring in the millennium. Far from it. Our ills are so deep-seated that in nearly every civilized country, racial values would continue to depreciate, even if all three were carried into effect. But they will at least give our wounds a chance to heal, and they will give the new biological revelation time to permeate the popular consciousness and transfuse with a new idealism our materialistic age. As the years pass, the supreme importance of heredity and the supreme value of superior stocks will sink into our being, and we will acquire a true race consciousness, as opposed to national or cultural consciousness, which will bridge political gulfs, remedy social abuses, and exercise the lurking specter of miscegenation. In those better days, we or the next generation will take in hand the problem of race depreciation, and segregation of defectives and abolition of handicaps penalizing the better stocks will put an end to our present racial decline. By that time, biological knowledge will have so increased and the popular philosophy of life will have been so idealized that it will be possible to inaugurate positive measures of race betterment which will unquestionably yield the most wonderful results. Those splendid tasks are probably not ours. They are for our successors in a happier age, but we have our task, and God knows it is a hard one, the salvage of a shipwrecked world. Ours it is to make possible the happier age, whose full fruits we shall never see. Well, what of it? Does not the new idealism teach us that we are links in a vital chain, charged with high duties both to the dead and the unborn? In very truth, we are at once sons of sires who sleep in calm assurance that we will not betray the trust they confined to our hands, and sires of sons who in the beyond wait confident that we shall not cheat them of their birthright. Let us then act in the spirit of Kipling's immortal lines, quote, Our fathers in a wondrous age, ere yet the earth was small, ensured to us an heritage, and doubted not at all that we, the children of their heart, which then did beat so high, in later time should play like part for our posterity. Then, fretful, murmur not they gave so great a charge to keep, nor dream that awestruck time shall save their labor while we sleep. Dear bought and clear, wow, a thousand our fathers I was titled stymied yet again we likewise their sacrifice defrauding two not our sons uh, powerful conclusions to the audio segment um, we will see if we have attentive listeners this is not the first time that we have had the poetry of Rudyard Kipling introduced on a book study club uh, folks remember uh, previously when Rudyard Kipling has been brought up during a book study you remember want to pull that out Anywho, the number to dial, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, we have lots of auxiliary literature for this week. So uh, I asked during the first audio segment uh, if Professor Ross, he's mentioned so many times, uh, his report, The Causes of Race Superiority. Uh, so one of our listeners, he nabbed it. He mentioned it during the first audio segment. 
Uh, he emailed it to me. I shared it. I posted it on our Facebook page. You can download it and check it out yourself. It's like 20 pages. It's not very long. Feel free. You can check that out. Uh, also, uh, the report that Stoddard quotes about the fast-breeding Japanese in California, I thought that that would be something interesting to check out as well. Uh, so I got that. That's from Literary Digest from August of 1919, which is a very important year. That was Red Summer, where you had all of the race riots uh, around the country, which is interesting because that gets mentioned in the same issue where this article, uh, which is titled Japanese Picture Brides Become Frights in California. That's the title of the article, and he quoted from that in the second audio segment. And then the last piece of literature, I just stumbled on this as I was looking for that previous piece that I mentioned in Literary Digest. They also have an article in that same report, Why the Negro Appeals to Violence, in the very same issue. And it's uh, like one of the first articles in that issue. Uh, it's Why the Negro Appeals to Violence. And it's important because, again, 1919, they're talking about some of these incidents that happened in Chicago and Washington. Uh, Carter G. Woodson uh, was a victim in the, Chicago, in the Washington, D.C. incident. Uh, he was almost killed. This was before he wrote The Miseducation of the Negro. We talked about this with Cameron McWhorter on the program, but uh, you can download all three of these different documents if you want to check them out and do some auxiliary reading, but just fascinating information as we proceed. Uh, all the folks that we had with us before should be with us. Roz, Mel, uh, I think uh, 1842, the caller at 5771. You all are with us. Feel free to share your thoughts. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. This is probably my favorite part of the book. Um, I think we finally got someplace where he's um, saying something that kind of just as important or it matters. One thing that I used to hear Dr. French Gressoson say a lot was that um, like, it's to be more logical about understanding why they're doing what they're doing and that genetic annihilation is the thing. It's the whole reason. It's not about hate or anything like, although it's that, you know, they breed that in it, but at the underlying foundation part is genetic annihilation. And um, it opens up at chapter 12, um, ours is a solemn moment, we stand at a crisis, the supreme crisis of the ages. And I was just like, hmm, I mean, not that that's like, not the first time that that's been stated, but to say it so succinctly, I was just like, exactly. And I'm beginning to understand like, that it's less about it, there's a fear, like white people have a fear, but it's for them that fear is very logical. Like all of a sudden in this part of the, the reading, it just all of a sudden just really clicked. They really, 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 like no matter what, like sometimes I would think, well, you just wouldn't have to do that. The fear says if even if we didn't do it, we would still disappear. Like this was their, they, they believe that they have to do, like for them this is logical is what I'm saying. White domination is logical. Without it, they would perish. You know, just probably even not like us invading them or anything. They would just die off without having done um, what they've done. And then um, I thought it was 
very interesting. Now we've transgressed, grievously transgressed, and are suffering grievous penalties. I would have loved a little bit more expounding on that. Like, I mean, I, I can intuit what is being said, but it would have been nice for him to enumerate how grievously they've transgressed and what they mean by that. Um, to even have that and seeking a cure, like it would, it would be really, really um, nice to have that be listed. Like, are they talking about just enslavement or, I mean, are they talking about everything? Like all that they've done up until the point when the book was written, it would have been nice to have that. Um, and then a little further down talking about the conditions, um, which is really interesting because research shows now that under certain, like stress can trigger genes that um, awaken dormant diseases or ailments. And so, and you know, your environment, which is what I'm reading when I hear conditions, influences and controls a lot of the genetics is what they're saying now. And so I don't know if they, of course, like knew it in depth like that then, but it's easy to know. You put people in a depressed state in an environment with poor water, poor food, poor air, noise pollution, like every other type of pollution that, of course, they'll be ill um, and put them through... Um, the type of slavery that we endure for so many years and it becomes to some level like genetic. Um, but that just good conditions alone, like, because we were thriving as far as I understand all and by we non-white people around the globe were cool, whether we were, uh, you know, really developing highly, highly civilized uh, civilizations or just existing and being peaceful where we were um, because our conditions were good as far as I understand. And so what they had to do was really, really, really go and um, destroy all those conditions and impoverish the entire world. Like when I read that, that's kind of what I took. And from there, put us in such a stressful state that now we have ailments and mental health disorders and physical disorders, high blood pressure and all that other kind of stuff. Um, and then, but then it was like, so I started to have like a little bit of feeling like, oh, I was like, oh, okay they, you know, get what they're doing. And like, he, for me, he just said, yeah, I know it's propaganda. When he said that the basic truth is already accepted that this, like, for me, I didn't read that as him saying that this is actually a truth, but me reading it as I know I've just made up a bunch of stuff and it's, this is a propaganda piece. And what I've written, I'm saying is a truth and is now being accepted. Um, and we'll go to uh, effect. So then tying into kind of what I was talking about a little bit earlier about them, not everybody having to have read this book. If a certain number of prominent people read the book, then that's, it totally made sense when you said that the thought would affect the social programs and policy, which then, you know, like trickles all the way down to even what's taught in schools, how the school books are written and, and so forth, so that not everyone would have to read the text to get, you know, the gist, to be a line to be the chains and the link, as he says. Um, I'll stop there. I had some other stuff, but I really, really appreciated this last part. There was a lot more um, in this, but this was good because it just, it all made sense. Like this really is um, white people know about white genetic annihilation. They may not know Dr. Welsing, but they know white genetic annihilation. Thank you. For sure. Uh, other folks have commentary that they wanted to get in? Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, Beth. Um, 
Yeah, I wanted to agree with the uh, female caller. She might have been the one who just was speaking who said that this book is encoded in their DNA, so they don't have to read it to get it, and that's absolutely correct. And it really took, and I think she said this to it or alluded to it, it re- really took getting to this portion to the end of the book for everything to come full circle, and it really, again, brings home why Dr. Wilson wanted us to read the book because this book, especially when you get to this section, is like proof positive. Um, I don't, I, I don't even call it a theory anymore. So it's a fact. Like what she did was incredible work, and um, thank God we had her for 80 years uh, to to share that knowledge because the kind of insight she had. I mean, thinking about the way, excuse me, how ferocious and predatory white people are. We're really, really lucky that they didn't take her out a long time ago or attempt to in a much more blatant fashion than they ended up doing towards the end of her life, sadly, because the information that she brought forward was just uh, just incredible and legendary. And um, the section that you read, uh, Gus, in regards to at the end of the previous reading, when uh, he dis- when he discusses um, all white and he says nothing is more striking than the instinctive and instantaneous solidarity which binds together uh, Australians, Africanus, Canif- Californians, and Canadians into a sacred union at the mere whisper of Asiatic immigration. When you read that, what that made me think of is the uh, <laughs> that term that I brought up, uh, white racist global superorganism, because they're basically saying, it don't matter where they come from, as long as they're white and they understand that they're in the white club because white people are the ones who make the decision as to who's white and who's non-white, that they form like Voltron, like you say so famously and so accurately, you know, the instant <laughs> that there's movement of any non-white people um, anywhere near or around them. And I found that to be extremely telling just because it just really just gets to the heart of the matter that, you know, once they understand that they're white and what it means to be white, it, it, that's all it takes. Um, on uh, page 166 of my text, um, he writes, the alarm of our California contemporary, to me, the, the alarm of our California contemporary may in this particular instance be exaggerated. Nevertheless, when we remember the practically unlimited expansive possibilities of even small, group, small human groups under favorable conditions, the picture drawn contains no features inherently impossible of realization. What is absolutely certain is that any wholesale oriental influx would inevitably doom whites, first on the Pacific coast and later of the whole United States, to social sterilization and ultimate race extinction. What that reminded me of was um, I remember there was uh, a white uh, albino alligator that was placed in a zoo. I forget where, but I believe it was in the United States. And whenever that alligator got into the pool with the colored alligators, all of the colored alligators would leave the water immediately. And I remember that the, the albino alligator, whenever it would get sexually aroused, it would turn bright pink and it was, it was a male. So it would go through the whole process, the mating process. And, um, and everything about it was so abnormal that none of the non-white, uh, non-albino alligators would pay any attention and they ended up having to isolate it and put it by itself. So when they discussed the social sterilization and ultimate racial extinction, that's what brought, brought to mind. To, it brought that uh, that report to mind to me in regards to um, if we were just to, you know, leave them alone and you know, uh, I think it's karma who calls it malignant neglect. Um, we could definitely get rid of them, no sex with them, and just let them kill themselves off and let them do whatever they do 
being what they are, which is white terrorists. Um, there was another brief section on page 167 where he writes, Indeed, a few observers of modern conditions have come to the conclusion that this invasion of Europe by Asiatic labor is inescapable. Excuse me, and they have drawn the most pessimistic conclusions. For example, more than a decade ago, an English writer asserted gloomily, no level-headed thinker can imagine that it will always be possible to prevent the free migration of intelligent races representing in the aggregate half of the peoples of the world. Should those peoples actively conceive that their welfare demands that they should seek employment in Europe? In these days of rapid transit of aviation, such a measure of repression is impossible. We shall not be destroyed, perhaps, by the sudden onrush of invaders as Rome was overwhelmed by the northern hordes. We shall be gradually subdued and absorbed by the peaceful penetration, in quotes, of more virile races. And that, to me, sounded like a Dr. Wilson moment. Um, it made me think of the gun when she talks about the gun being the great equalizer. And that, um, of course, when she discussed the fact that all it takes is for non-white males to procreate with non-white females to get rid of them. And um, him alluding to the peaceful penetration of more virile races specifically alludes to exactly what Dr. Wilson has always talked about. And um, finally... At the end of the text, I thought it was extremely important when he writes, uh, well, towards the end of the text, I should say, it's not at the end of the text, but he writes, so ends our survey. It has girded the globe, and the lesson is always the same. Colored migration is, the, is a universal peril menacing every part of the world. Nowhere can the white man endure colored competition. Everywhere the East can underlive the West. The grim truth of the matter is this. The whole white race is exposed immediately or ultimately to the possibility of social sterilization and final replacement or absorption by the teeming colored races. What is unspeak what is what excuse me, what this unspeakable catastrophe would mean for the future of the planet and how the peril may be averted will form the uh, subject of my concluding pages. So again it just really reinforces uh, Dr. Wilson's entire uh, premise of white genetic annihilation and exactly how accurate she was when she came up with that whole concept and um, her brilliance. I'm going to stop and let others uh, chime in. If I get a little more time, I, I have like two more things I wanted to touch on later. Thank you. Uh, do we have other folks who uh, wanted to share as well? People who didn't get to share uh, for the second time, she'll have commentary also. I will assume maybe. Uh, can I be here? Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was looking at the uh, the metaphor that he used about uh, when he says, first and foremost, the wretched Rousseau business will have to be thoroughly revisited. As it stands, dragon's teeth have been sown all over both Europe and Asia. I was wondering what he was using when he used that term dragon's teeth. Uh, I looked it up and it was, I guess apparently it was something used in World War II uh, by the Germans to impede the, uh, the track of tanks. So I was just wondering what that metaphor dragon's teeth, uh, he, you know, he meant uh, when he used that. That's a good point. I wasn't, uh, sure about that either it seemed i think he's made that clear that he was not pleased i guess with some of the resolutions that were made following the end of world war uh one and felt that that might lead to more problems and potential conflict between uh whites it's seeming i mean <clears throat> i'm just speculating from that type of metaphor suggesting that there's some sort of 
uh, punitive aspects, uh, threatening, uh, I guess, if, if certain quote-unquote European nations, if they do certain things, that there could be uh, punitive measures waiting for them. That's what it would suggest to me, dragon's teeth being sewn overhead. But yeah, I thought also it was a very curious metaphor. Did you have more that you wanted to share, or was that that was it? Uh, yeah, right now that that was it. Right on, appreciate that. Uh, anybody else, Mel? Any other folks we haven't heard from uh, have commentary they want to get in? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, I'll try to make this really quickly. Um, I'll try to make this really quick. On page 285, um, I might be a little bit late, he says, it were, it, was, it were better that they never be developed than that our white laborers be degraded and driven from the soil. Um, my comment was that here in California, I see black prisoners and brown so-called Latino prisoners and laborers working in these California fields. This feels inaccurate to me. I have no clue what white laborers he's talking about, unless he means the white people who pay to pick at the apple orchards. Um, to add on to my point for chapter 11, the working conditions of white people before non-white before non-white labor came along were horrible. I refuse to believe that people who practice widespread corpse medicine cared about their own poor people so much. So that when he says the introduction of non-white uh, labor de degrades the white man's working conditions, I would say again that white people do not have to undercut any workers' pay, white or non-white. But a white supremacist might actually be required to do that in a system. Um, <clears throat> Technically, I felt like slavery was in the United States with black people was really glossed over in this book. Um, the word slavery itself appears less than 14 times in the whole book, whereas the word power appears at least 111, 111 times. And black people in general, I feel like were kind of glossed over when they weren't swaying with bugged out eyes and I guess African wars. Um, I think I understand why Dr. Welsing recommended this book. It's very informative, but it's disgusting. Like, I've heard Mr. Fuller say something like um, that there are no human beings on the planet because there is no humanity. And Stoddard is a great example of a non-human being. He's so proud of the unification of evil, the powers made possible by widespread murder, rape, torture, and mistreatment. And white people today have learned this lesson, too, I think, because they'll constantly tell you about a new computer, some new microbiology products, um, and all kinds of things where we forget that we live on a planet where other human beings are still starving to death and we live in like the richest, fattest nation in the world and that other people are dying from diseases which, for which there are cures for right now. Like we, I mean, just, just his greatness of how far this planet has come along is, is appalling to me. Um, and finally, I wanted to say, uh, my partner did want to say thank you and you're well, I'm sorry, thank you for letting us uh, participate in this and you're welcome to everyone and we both really enjoyed participating and I really enjoyed hearing everybody's input and just opinions in the book club. And Gus, as always, did a great job of orchestrating the reading and providing the supplemental material like the debate. So thanks so much. I'm done. Oh, for sure. Thank you all as well. I uh, always a bore having to narrate so it's always grand when you have listener participation for the narration and uh, particularly folks to do a great job just professional it was outstanding really enjoyed it the input uh as well three cheers universal uh alien um i had a couple quick notes uh i'm also pleased because i went through south of panama apparently that's one of the articles that uh, Professor Ross authored where he's getting some of this material from. So I'm going to see if I can get my hands on that as well. South of Panama. Uh, 
Professor E.A. Ross. Um, in fact, I'm going to hop to the auxiliary material because I nabbed so many interesting things. I'm going to even start with the one that was not directly mentioned, but it's in the same Literary Digest magazine that he has. He quotes from them regularly, uh, and this is from the same issue where they have this report that is lamenting all of these Japanese brides that have come here and they're having all these children and they're going to be, they're producing more children than even whites in California in 1919. And again, this is the year of the race riots that happened all over Arkansas, Mississippi, Washington, D.C., Chicago. They're not even race riots, excuse me. White terrorist attacks on black people. Widespread. So this article is why the Negro appeals to violence. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph. It says uh, May McClay Hoyne, Illinois state attorney, reports that large quantities of firearms, deadly weapons and ammunition were stored by Negroes in Chicago's Black Belt that Negroes had been arming themselves for months before the recent race war began that an outbreak of Negro violence in Chicago had been planned for July 4th and that a secret organization is counseling the Negroes to obtain what they regard as social equality by force if necessary. That's the opening line and it goes on with more of this about, you know, why oh why are Negroes so violent? Uh, This is in the same issue as I said that Mr. Stoddard uh, quotes from about the uh, Japanese breeding that's going on. Uh, One of the other auxiliary pieces that I picked up from this week. This is from the causes of race superiority. This is from Professor E.A. Ross that he's been referencing so liberally where he says, uh, closely related to energy is the virtue of self-reliance. So these are some of the qualities that he's saying uh, are a part of what causes race superiority. So he says, closely related to energy is the virtue of self-reliance. There is a boldness which rises at the elbow touch of one's fellows, and there is a stout-heartedness which inspires a man when he is alone. There is a courage which confronts resolutely a known danger and a courage which faces perils unknown or vague. Now, it is this latter quality, self-reliance, which characterizes those who have migrated the oftenest and have migrated as individuals. On our frontier has always been found the Daniel Boone type who cared little for the support of his kind and loved danger and adventure for its own sake. The American's faith in himself and confidence in the friendliness of the unknown may be due to his enlightenment, but it is more likely the unapprehensiveness that runs in the blood of a pioneering breed, sometimes as in the successive trekkings of the Boers from Cape Town to the Limpopo, the trait most intensified is independence and self-reliance, sometimes as in the settling of the Trans-Mississippi region, The premium is put on energy and push, but in any case, voluntary migration demands men. I thought that was just such a profound commentary in all of the examples. White people practicing racism. Uh, I think Mel's point about the minimization of the terroristic abuse of black people, enslavement of black people and other things where that just kind of gets kicked to the side. I think the same thing in this Uh, portion here all of these whites they are exercising demonstrating their manhood and self-reliance in the practice expansion maintenance of white terrorism Uh, but this is professor ross you can read more of that and then uh the last portion just that that piece that where he quotes from the japanese picture brides become 
Frights in California, he's upset, uh, the person that wrote this piece, uh, being so upset about their rates of reproduction. Uh, it's, it's kind of a lengthy piece, but uh, he, he writes one paragraph. It says, a perusal of the birth statistics of the state during recent years proves that intermarriage and intermating between Japanese and white populations in California is almost unknown. We have received millions of migrants from European countries during recent years and assimilated them as fast as they came. But to assimilate the Japanese immigrants is impossible. Apparently, nature never intended the Caucasian and the Japanese peoples to interbreed. And it goes on from there. This is the same thing where he's upset that they're not talking about making sure we preserve California as white man's country. Uh, I think this is important not just number one at this time period you had a lot more flagrant Lothrop Stoddard and Lucille Stoddards where white women and white men could come out and just talk this bluntly uh, very much akin to what you have now where that has kind of resurged with uh, what they're calling now white nationalism and Trump and all of that uh, but you had a lot more of that you didn't have the refinement where you could just come out and say this type of thing and not be you know assailed and attacked you would be a respectable person doing what you're, you're a respectable white woman respectable white man that's one i also thought just all of this kind of reinforces i think what we've all have been saying about how so much of this it just tremendously corroborates what dr welsing has been saying uh, her theory of white genetic annihilation uh, and why they practice racism white supremacy and why this is such an effective rallying cry seemingly at any time uh, for whites to rally uh, other whites uh, for the practice of racism and to motivate and do things uh, to preserve the global white minority. Um, I have, I have aired this. I think this is the first time. This is the first time I read this book and I got confused looking at the notes. This is the end. We are all done with the book. We finished so fast. I didn't even realize that we were all done with the book. So all done. So you should make sure if you have a final thought you want to get in, do it today because we're all done there will be no next week with purge intro because we are uh moving on to a new book next week uh as i said if i had my druthers i would take gwen eiffel if you want to vote you should do so by monday uh to select the next book uh people have picked uh lots of different things i think delectable negro uh, i said zadie smith as well uh because people i know people dig watching television zadie smith zadie smith is a non-white female outside the u.s this is fiction Right, since this is kind of a, a dense historical read, uh, NW is a TV show that is getting a lot of attention, British TV show, but it's all about racism in the UK. I said that's an option as well, but if I really had my druthers, Gwen Eiffel, black journalist, uh, The Breakthrough, uh, I would say let's do that. Uh, but if folks want to pick a book, have other thoughts, feel free, you can email and we'll have a decision made by next Monday. Um, I will get one more comment in, and then if anybody else has anything they want to share before we conclude the section we see can i be heard uh yes sir just give me one oh i'm sorry uh, no apologies i'm just trying to see what one thing i would benjamin franklin he he references many other fellow race soldiers we talked about ben franklin ben, benjamin franklin who also lamented uh the small population of whites in comparison to non-white people worldwide even lamented that, that there were not a greater population of whites that whites didn't have a higher percentage of the population at that time Benjamin Franklin also uh, a lot with newspapers uh, and the promotion of slavery uh, we talked about that with the American Slave Coast when we had the sublets on the program earlier this year um, also 
Rudyard, I didn't hear anybody mention Rudyard Kipling. He was mentioned on a previous program, Rudyard Kipling. Uh, just to get that in a, uh, again, if anyone wants to take a shot. Uh, anything else I wanted to get in before? I will stop there. Uh, the caller, thank you for your patience. Did you want to get a comment in, sir? Uh, yes, quickly. I looked up dragon's teeth and metaphor behind it. Mm-hmm. I guess it was based off of a Greek mythology from Jason and the Argonauts, where uh, if you plant a dragon's tooth, it will grow into an you know into a soldier. So basically, the metaphor is referring to doing something that gives rise to dispute. So I guess what Lapostada is saying is that uh, there's dragon's teeth all over you know Europe and Asia where. Uh, it can, uh, it can, I guess, uh, uh, disrupt uh, white, white solidarity and white unity, which is the, you know, the theme he's been using uh, across the book. Uh, you know, uh, talking about, uh, you know, in the book. Absolutely, great research. Appreciate that. A um, lot of other interesting little auxiliary projects, tidbits to uh, read some of the other sources. Uh, any other concluding uh, comments folks want to get, get in since this is all wrapping up? Any, any additional insight as to why Dr. Welsing picked this book, how this related to her thoughts about Donald Trump? I do think it's fascinating. I cannot emphasize that it us, us reading this book at a time where white nationalism is now the new big term that they're saying and is prominently being discussed and used. Um, just, again, Dr. Welsing, her, her greatness uh, is the whole reason that that lined up so well in terms of the timing. Uh, but any uh, final comments that folks want to make about that uh, or anything relating to the text before we conclude? Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Um, uh, what was what? What were the last couple of questions? My mind just went blank for a second there that you were asking briefly. Uh, just any additional insight as to why Dr. Welsing recommended the book, uh, as to how this book may have related to her prediction about Trump's success, uh, the commentary about uh, there being so much discussion at this moment. We're reading the book at this moment where there's so much discussion employing terms like white nationalism and even white supremacy directly. Uh, if you have any thoughts on any of those or any other concluding topics before we ride. Sure. I think um, that this book. And just everything about it really is like the DNA blueprint for how white supremacy functions. And I think it's a gem simply because when you come across something like this, it really brings everything about what makes white people function like they do into full view. Their uh, propensity for lying, um, grant, uh, Grandiose personality disorder, narcissism, like the previous uh, female caller had brought up earlier, um, psychopathy, sociopathy, it's all in here. Um, their ability to, to obfuscate history and change reality, especially like you were saying earlier, and I think it was the same previous female caller, um, the um, just for, uh, Mel, I think it was, um, forgetting or completely ignoring um, what was done to African people. I mean, it was. it's just, I think it's everything... Everything that she's ever said and ever written on the subject of racism and white supremacy, you can find the the everything that you need to know to understand wh- what gave her the ideas that she had that turned into be that fact. Because I don't even like to call it a theory. It is is so far beyond a theory, and her brilliance is just pure legend. I mean, 
Um, we should be talking about her for for as long as black people exist on this planet. Her name should be in the mouths of every one of us because it really makes her work that much more transformative in its impact simply because it's like it's it's made plain in a way that I don't think it's made plain in any other text. And I think that's why she um she asked us to to admonish us, I would say, to really, really read this book and, and take it seriously as far as uh, studying this, this text. And um one thing I found important was uh, right before the uh, poem by, by Rudyard Kipling, when he writes, uh, well, what of it? Does the new idealism teach us that we are links in a vital chain charged with high duties both to the dead and the unborn? In very truth, we are at once the sons of sires who sleep in calm assurance that we will not betray the trust they confided in our hands, and sires of sons who in the beyond wait confident that we shall not cheat them of their birthright. That was incredible. Um, this really, again, Dr. Wilson, it also speaks to the fact that they, the white people plot generations ahead, you know, thousands of years ahead, hundreds of years ahead. This is how they think. And they got the idea of doing that from African people, if you study Nile Valley history for one specific section of Africa. But what they did was they inverted it, like they invert and pervert everything that they ever steal from other people. And this, their, their forward thinking is always in the propagation of racism, white supremacy in perpetuity. So it's, it's really deep how much this book really reveals everything that Dr. Welsing um, has talked about her entire life. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And also, there was something that, uh, let me see, let me see, uh, uh, there was something that one of the female callers brought up earlier, and it came to my mind when I was uh, reading that section, but it slipped my mind just now. Um, oh my gosh, it was it, it was brilliant what she had brought up too. Um, uh, it slipped my mind. Hopefully, I'll, I'll, it'll come back to me if it does. Hopefully, I'll get to... to bring it up before we, we close out but um there was something she said that was really brilliant thank you i'll just put myself on me for now right on it'll come back to you um i did want to make sure i got in as well i think last week mel had mentioned because it, it for me it came up again in the text this week when he was talking about not allowing non-white people asians to come in and be migrant workers and work agriculture or do you know any sort of crop picking anything um and she said, like this was last week where Mel said, it reminded her when Mr. Fuller was saying that there was a white guy who was saying, you know, we, you got to do your own work. We can't just have all these non-white people doing all this work. They'll get strong. That was George Lincoln Rockwell. And his commentary this week reminded me of that same rhetoric that uh, George Lincoln Rockwell was known for spewing in the uh, 1960s. And he was another prominent uh, racist white supremacist, proud of it in the same vein as Lothrop Stoddard and, and many others. Uh, also, some of this exact same reg, uh, rhetoric, it reminded me a lot of Brexit, uh, the, what we heard this week, the same type of logic in terms of people saying that they did not want this influx of non-white people. The same thing, this non-white tide, all these folks are coming in here. This is horrendous. Uh, you know, we, we, we feel like we are being usurped in the land of our fathers. The same type of rhetoric that we heard in the document this week. Uh, it reminded me very much of what we heard this summer with that. Uh, and also his talk about race treason uh, and saying these whites that are being selfish and greedy 
uh, on an individual level and saying, well, yeah, let's have, you know, the folks come over and do this work. I don't want to do it. This is grimy work and it's, it's hard and dangerous. Let's get them to come over as cheap labor and do this and saying that you're supposed to be thinking of the greater white collective. I think you hear a lot of that. I even think you hear some of that rhetoric right now where whites are feeling as though they have been uh, abandoned, right? They're upset about that. Uh, we're not doing enough to support white people. That's some of the rhetoric that you hear from uh, with the group that they, they say they are alt-right, quote-unquote, but just another outfit of racism, white supremacy. But that's a lot of what you hear, that, you know, we are we have been neglected. The white race has been neglected, and that's what we're about. We're about identity politics and focusing on the identity of the white race and getting benefits for us. Uh, just hearing that being stated more and more explicitly right now. Again, just Dr. Welsing uh, reading this book. She could see that that was happening, the reconstruction of racism, white supremacy, and, and a lot of the exact same concerns. Uh, it seems like uh, Stoddard would be right there with the whole white nationalist movement right there. They could put him right in, and he'd be the person that they could stick out front with a suit and sound real polished and have his Ivy League degree so he doesn't sound like some crude David Duke guy. They could put him out there so it sounds real acceptable and doesn't sound like some you know savage KKK outfit. Uh, with that... Uh, unless somebody has something they can do concisely in like 30 seconds. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I wanted to touch on, um, yeah, when the system actually brought up, uh, uh, when she brought up the fact that they, when he wrote essentially, um, now that we have trans transgressed, grievously transgressed, and we are suffering grievous penalties, but pain is really kind, pain is the importunate toxin which rouses to dangerous realities and spurs to the seeking of a cure. I think that um, she's absolutely right. It would have been great if he would have elucidated more about the transgressions. Um, I would interpret it as essentially everything white people have done to the planet, to non-white people, to all living organisms, and the fact that basically the earth is getting rid of them. And when he speaks of um, seeking of a cure, that seeking of a cure, um, and he says, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we are confusedly aware of our evil plight and legion. I'm sorry, and legion are the remedies, uh, and legion are the remedies uh, today proposed. Um, I was just thinking that that evil plight, meaning that they're aware of what they're doing to other people. They really know what they're doing to other people. Thank you. Grand. Uh, I wanted to also make sure I got in as well. White people do mistreat other white people. I've pointed that out consistently. So they do get upset when uh, some other whites, when they practice racism and in the process, do not look out for other whites or they do not uh, divvy up the booty amongst other whites so they don't get to benefit. They do that sort of thing a lot. And whites do get upset about that. We, I think, sometimes get confused into thinking that the whites that are upset that they are our allies or are not racist are going to help us put the racist side of business. That's not what it is at all. I think you're seeing some of that now, but that sort of thing does happen, and I think that's why Stoddard was addressing this. I also think it's important, too, I think whites, this type of effort, I think Stoddard writing what his concerns were, things that might be, that may jeopardize white power, white domination. And so him putting out a book with ideas about how to address those concerns. I think whites do that all the time. This is such a primary effort. They have lots and lots of these whites uh, writing books like this. Patrick Buchanan, David Duke, some this alt-right, uh, Richard Spencer. You have tons and tons. You have white women as well. I would say Ann Coulter might be one, but you have lots and lots and lots of whites who this is their effort. This is their contribution. When they see potential problems, things that they can do to motivate other whites, 
to go out and make sure that they're doing their part to hold it down for white power, making sure that they're not making errors, and to make sure that they're looking down the road. I think there's a lot of that in this text as well. Started looking 100, 500, 1,000 years uh, into the future and saying these could be potential problems way later. I think you see a lot of that with whites as well. Uh, and that's how you maintain a long-running system of terrorism. We will stop there. New book for next week. Make sure you drop a vote, drop an email, justice at gmail.com for which book we'd like to do next week. Again, my heavy favorite would be Gwen Eiffel, The Breakthrough, but we'll have to see. I will announce on Monday. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward to reviewing what went down over the last week. Uh, if you have questions, problems finding something in the archives, if you have a guest suggestion, uh, if you have a complaint or a gripe, Email again until justice at gmail.com. Thanks for everyone tuning in. Thanks for Mel, Universal Alien, doing the reading, and everyone who participated. It was great hearing from folks. I hope uh, this aided our understanding of racism, white supremacy, and pushing us towards solutions to the problem. Uh, we'll ask again sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, with all of the things that have been happening this week and uh, black motorists being shot and killed. That's happened quite a few times uh, this year. Deborah Pearl, Joe McKnight. Uh, I just don't think uh, that we can afford to be lax as though we're just having fun and having a grand old time when war is being waged against us constantly. I just don't think that for most victims of racism, I don't think we can truthfully say that being under the influence of alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, whatever the other narcotics are, that that is going to help us to put us in a better position to be counter-racists. I don't think if you get pulled over, you're in a vehicle, driver, passenger, even if you're a pedestrian, and you get pulled over or stopped by Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, I don't think too many of us can truthfully say that, hey, if I've had about four brews, I'm going to be way better at being able to navigate that situation, get out of it, get out of it unscathed, unharmed, unarrested. I will be much better able to do that if I've had a blunt or three. I don't think most of us can truthfully say that our behavior should reflect at all times that war is being waged against us and we are functioning in a manner where we can respond to the best of our abilities in a counter-racist manner. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.